Welcome to State of Health Podcast. This is your host, J-Mart. On this podcast, I will share my knowledge and experience as a personal trainer and health coach and talk about my interests and experiments in physical training, nutrition, and other lifestyle factors involved in health. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Sean Leal, who is a black belt Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor and was my professor at the Yorkdale Martial Arts Academy. I asked Sean to come on the podcast because he has a wealth of knowledge about martial arts history, which I'm keen to learn more about. I also wanted to ask Sean about his first-hand experience in personal protection and which parts of martial arts training, in his opinion, translate to effective self-defense in street fighting. Lastly, Sean talked about brain damage and shared his experience with post-traumatic stress disorder in the last third of the podcast. It's a long two-and-a-half-hour podcast, so strap yourselves in. Just before we get started, this is a reminder that you can get started with my free bodyweight training program, Body Basics, which requires no equipment by going to subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm. Hit subscribe if you like the content and hit the notification bell too. If you're listening through a podcast app, could you please share the podcast with a friend who may also enjoy listening and discussing it with you? All right, here's the episode. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me on, uh, what are we on? Thank you for joining me for another episode of State of Health. That's the name of my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> haven't done an episode of State of Health for a long time. I switched to do. I'm, I'm doing two podcasts now, so oh, okay. yeah, this is the health-related one, and uh, I want to have you on. This is Sean, everybody. Thank you for joining me, Sean. I'm gonna just say a quick hello to the mic. Hello, everybody. Sean was my instructor for a while at my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gym, Yorkdale Martial Arts. Now, on top of being a great instructor, he's just like really knowledgeable about martial arts. So I wanted to have him over and just pick his brain about martial arts in general and then yeah. of course somehow talk about the history of it a little bit and then somehow tie it back to health because ultimately that's the name of the podcast the state of health and let's see how you kind of think about health and how it's related to martial arts okay let's start off with just the basic question of uh how old were you when you first started martial arts which one was it oh man um so the first one was boxing uh, and I started into it because I was playing American football at the time in King Canada, the American football yeah. fans. Um, and I wanted a, a job that would interfere with training for football because I love football so much. So I ended up um, getting a job as a nightclub security guard at 18 years old. Even though you're not legally allowed to drink until 19, you can work in clubs at 18. Nice. And I was just a big kid. And... Um, what ended up happening was it was actually during the Hells Angels takeover war where the Hells Angels were actually taking over like Bandidos, Paris Riders, Saints Choice. They were just sort of amalgamating all these clubs and it was literally a war. They were like going to these clubs and saying like, you're all going to fall under this banner or else we're going to get rid of you. Holy cow. A lot of violence and stuff. And I was so young and being autistic, didn't understand a lot of the social issues. And I just walked into this club and got a job and it was like, are you sure you want to work here? And I had no idea what was going on. So I was like, yeah. And one of the guys who was there, um, named Mr. McKay, saw me fight a guy who was three times my size and handled myself well because I was just a strong kid. And he was like, hey, do you want to learn how to fight? He started teaching me boxing. So that was my first intro into the boxing world. Wow. I'm surprised uh, you were in your like late teens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I... 
autism, which I didn't, I wasn't diagnosed formally until 33. It slows okay. a lot of the progress and it slows a lot of understanding. So my mom tried like karate when we were kids, like every kid in Canada kind of went through this karate phase and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was maybe like two months or something. Right. Not, not serious. Not serious. And as an autistic kid, I just mm-hmm. had no interest in anything until contact sports became on my radar. Yeah. And yeah. that's when I started actually interacting with people. So oh, wow. Okay. Like, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And then how long did you do boxing until you found different martial arts? Um, so I worked and fought with frequency every weekend at that club. I would see an average of like 14 fights per night. Yeah. And that was just not sanctioned ones, right? Yeah. Just just straight up fucking bar fights. I being again, being young, where I was from stuff, I, I fully did not comprehend that that wasn't normal. In my, in my family life, in my home life and stuff, there's a lot of violence. And so for me, this just seemed kind of like par for the course. Mm-hmm. So I actually liked the job. I had to beat up bad guys. Yeah. And then I got paid great money at the time. I was making like $250 cash per night because, and this is actually true. Um, every time they hired somebody to work with me, that person would get the shit kicked out of them and quit the same night they got hired. So they just kept paying me all this money because they were like, we can't believe you're here. Just be here. <laughs> so Yeah, for someone that age. Yeah. That's a lot of money. I kept boxing because of that. Um, and I really liked Mr. McKay. I looked up to him. And he was he was this, he was a great father. He had a daughter. He's very committed to his wife. And he was actually a really good person. And because he was a really good person, all these bikers were trying to get him to join into the Angels and stuff. And he was like, no. And he was so tough that when they tried to intimidate him, he ended up fighting with him. He just annihilated people. And so I trained through him and with him and then ended up going to places like Uptown Boxing in Barrie, which was run by Jack Ireland, which is still there. Um, that's where Gary Goodrich, the MMA legend originally, he, he started his boxing there. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I went all around the different, and there were like clubs back then were very different. Like boxing was either totally prize fighting or basically it didn't exist. So if you wanted to learn how to box, for real life and you didn't end up going to prize fighting clubs it was really hard to find people that would kind of cover that so mm-hmm. I ended up floating around to a lot of different places and houses and garages and backyards and stuff and like there would be you know guys would just meet in the back of somebody's freaking house there's like a rope and a circle on the ground and they're like we're gonna box today you know oh, so, yeah. yeah they would be really committed I guess yeah yeah it was fun I, I learned a lot and I did that for probably the better part of about four years. And then when I was 25, a friend of mine went to China because um, they were just frustrated with their life in Canada. And I helped them to go there. And part of that was getting um, ESL certified as a second language teacher. And they went over to China and then kind of contacted me a year later. And they were like, hey, there's work over here. You want to come? And I knew nothing but China, nothing but anything. But, you know, again, being autistic, not fully comprehending what I was getting to, I was like, sure. Yeah. So I just went and uh, I was in China for a month and a half and um, this woman came into the school, like five foot four woman, maybe 140 pounds and said, if you teach me English for free, I'll teach you how to fight. And I had already been boxing and working at biker bars and I was like, I didn't want to fight. But it was very rude in China to say no. So I ended up studying with her and her daughter kicked the crap out of me. And her daughter was like 13, 14 years old, which just blew my mind yeah. and I didn't even know 
what I was learning at the time or anything. And years later, when I really hit the books and started studying, I realized that what I had been taught essentially was an art called Jinfa, which is in Chinese terms, a soft form of Kung Fu. Cool. And that introduced me to grappling. So when I came back to Canada, I got into the next one. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So even though it's a variation of Kung Fu, usually people think of striking for Kung Fu, but it's a yeah, but it's grappling style. Yeah, there's actually soft form and hard form when it comes to Kung Fu. Okay. And those forms are all also greatly um, affected by dialect and region. Yeah. And a lot of people who have been to China may not know this. So the dialects of China are so radically different that many people that speak one dialect can't speak another, which is why they have Mandarin. It's a high dialect that connects everybody. Oh. And they're all, they all learn Mandarin in the way that we learn either English or we learn French or etc. Yeah. But if you have like a city like Changsha, where I was living, mm-hmm. in a city close by like Chengdu, the people who speak the local dialect of Chengdu, which is a 40-minute drive from Changsha, cannot understand people speaking Changsha's dialect, which is Changsha Hua, I believe. Huh. So they Amazing. use Mandarin to bridge it. Right? Mm-hmm. And so each dialect ends up having its own variations of soft and hard forms of Kung Fu. So you have from city to city, province to province, you have these radical differences in the approach of the style of Kung Fu. And I learned a very, very rare one that is pretty much taught exclusively to communist families who are connected to the government there. So it would be kind of like your dad is in the military and he teaches you special forces combat. Mm-hmm. You would only be privy to that if you were the son of or the yeah. daughter of that person. So it was a similar situation, except they kind of took me on because they at the time would gain prestige by having foreign friends. It was like mm-hmm. if you met a celebrity, you would become more popular by proxy being with that yeah, celebrity. Sure. Not that your celebrity just mm-hmm. being foreign, but Got similar it. situation. Right? Yeah. So they spilled the beans to you. Yeah, yeah, they kinda of did. Yeah. <laughs> and they were very clear like don't tell people we're practicing we're teaching you this and stuff. It wasn't like literally secrecy. Mm-hmm. But it was don't advertise. Yeah, know? yeah, gotcha. they they would get a pushback for that for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting with martial arts. There, there is a little bit of that, that like historically been a bit of a secrecy aspect oh, to it yeah. because yeah. it's like if you share your tools of the trade with somebody, then they know some of the you know things you're because some of the things are almost mystical when you can actually pull off some moves on people. You're like, how did you do that? Yeah, even even <laughs> to present day. Yeah. Like there, there are some genuine methods. Like in our infantry, for example, in our military, you don't really get any hand-to-hand type stuff, basic stuff like maybe boxing or doing your basic kind of stuff. But when you, when you have someone join special forces in the Canadian Armed Forces, they are taught a form of hand-to-hand combat that is not taught to the rest of the military forces in training, and that is arguably like Canada's national hand-to-hand method. And the reason they only teach special forces is because you don't really need hand-to-hand and open field shooting at each other. But if you're doing like breach and enter in a room this size, like we're in right now, then maybe somebody gets a hand on your gun and it isn't a hand-to-hand issue, right? So mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of that. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Raid Redemption. Oh, no, but sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a movie where they, yeah. there's like a... A lot of hand fighting because they're in close quarters due to being in a in a apartment building. Yeah, <laughs> going room to room. Yeah. So. Well, and also like if uh, say you're 
in an operation, an operation takes like a month or something, you're running out of ammunition and you're using knives, mm-hmm. like things can go wrong, guns get jammed. It's never the way that Hollywood depicts. Yeah. <laughs> like one thing that always kind of makes me giggle is in Hollywood films, someone gets shot and then that's it, that person's just dead immediately. <laughs> yeah. That is rarely the case. <laughs> rarely the case. Usually it's one, two, three, four, the guy's still coming. Yeah. Because your body's adrenaline system kicks in, you know, unless you're hitting a vital organ like a heart or a brain, mm-hmm. they're probably going to still live for another 10 minutes until they bled out and lost blood pressure to the point where they collapse. Right. Yeah. So it's not just because you shot someone doesn't mean it's the end of all, right? They may die later, but it's certainly not an instantaneous death in 90% of the cases. It's not instantaneous. So hand to hand becomes very relevant in those situations, yeah. right? That's when, yeah. yeah. You, uh, they're, they're still coming at you, you go over the hip throw. <laughs> yeah, well, if you read with like uh, the Boer Wars, I don't know if you've ever heard of Boer Wars in South Africa. I, I have heard of them, but uh, I haven't read anything. So when when the war started, the Boers were fighting, I can't remember which side, but there was a formal request to get a larger caliber handgun. And it was literally because they're complaining, like, we're shooting these of the enemy and they just keep coming. We need a larger caliber bullet to actually stop them. Yeah, yeah. So that gives you an example of kind of the reality of hands mm-hmm. with firearms and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, I remember like uh, from other movies where they used to have like duels and stuff. Where, yeah. Where it was like, uh, you'll have to hit a real good shot to get me because yeah. I'm coming after you. Like there's being on this macho like threatening. Yeah, <laughs> sure. sure. Yeah. Mm, so okay you then you got introduced from striking to a soft kung fu style that's more a little bit more grappling and then okay so you're kind of i always think of martial arts with the two sides of striking and the grappling so now you have experience with both kind of aspects of it and then uh did you ever transition to judo or straight to jiu-jitsu yeah so i i I transitioned to judo when i got back to canada Mm -hmm. and i actually thought uh, i had learned primarily judo when I was in China because they used judo geese as a sort of judo system. But it was, that was when I discovered, when I realized I hadn't been learning judo because I went to a judo club. Um, it was either in Barrie, Ontario or really Ontario. And I went in and they said, like, do you have any experience? And I said, yeah, I just trained in China. But they were like, okay, let's see what you got. And this gray belt came onto the mat to kind of like spar with me. And I threw the gray belt and they were all sort of shocked. And I was shocked too, you know. And then I went for... Uh, a technique that we used very commonly when I was practicing in China with that group, which is an outer arm reap, and that is illegal in judo. And they were like, "Whoa, you can't do that!" And I meant no injury by it, but I was like, "Oh, well, we used to do it literally all the time." Mm-hmm. And that was when I was like, "I don't think I learned judo." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I did study a bit of judo when I got back and kept on with it, but the formalities of competitive judo basically more or less rendered judo to a near useless state from a from a perspective of, of use in real life. And I was still working regularly doing mm-hmm. like nights of security, asset protection. I eventually moved into personal protection. So I was always focused on training for the purpose of work. So I moved away from judo at that point and I ended up coming to Toronto um, to train with a judo guy who was getting into BJJ himself. And then he introduced me to BJJ, and that's how I ended up getting into BJJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And how long has it been since then? Um, 14 years since I started uh, from the judo ploy. Okay. And I think maybe 10 years officially ranking in BJJ, but I was really, I was already into BJJ, like three, four years by that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was training, like, I had the very 
lucky fortune and privilege of um, being in Barry when I got home from China. So I was invited to train with Gary Goodrich in his house. And he had just straight up murderers. It was just the most savage room you could possibly imagine in this loft. Literally guys who were out on parole for manslaughter, captain of the SWAT team from the area, prize fighters, Olympic wrestlers, just every mixed match. So I was exposed to just crazy nonsense. Athletes of the highest caliber that, of course, I could not even touch with a stick, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah amazing. So it was really good. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And, then, and then how long before you started teaching? Um, I came to Toronto. I was working for a security company here in Toronto for... So I was five years of that company. And around year three of that company... Um, the owner of the company asked me if I'd be willing to teach the other guards for the nightclub operations, the loss prevention for Shoppers Drug Mart, and the asset protection for like Levy and Diamonds and other stuff, and then personal protection as well. So we opened a small space that we were paying for with the company um, profit for a very low amount of money. It was only like 800 bucks a month or something in space. And we used it to train the guards. So I started teaching the guards. And I remember that being a real problem because in the formal competitive worlds of different martial arts, be it karate, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, judo, samba, what have you, there's this constant insistence on the notion of being of a certain rank before you begin teaching. And I Mm -hmm. had come from the very, very real world of like, no, no, I'm fighting for a living. And I was fighting anywhere average, even after the biker wars, I was fighting still like... It was not abnormal for me to see anywhere from four to nine fights a weekend. And I would, like, I know in Toronto police systems I have, like, 100 arrests plus, maybe 200 arrests plus. I know in Halton I've got two, 300. Like, Jesus Christ. So for every person I arrested, there was reasonably conservatively about four fights where I didn't arrest somebody. It was just, like, a bar brawl that I threw somebody out or it was, like, a warning for somebody getting too close to a client I was protecting. So I, I had... By the time I'd been in this company started teaching, I'd already seen like well over 1,500, 2,000 fights. Yeah. Right? And because there's no official recognition or formality of rank from fighting in real life, it looks like this person doesn't know what he's doing. But that's when I started to see the disparity between competition and self-defense because, mm-hmm. you know, a typical example for anybody who, who practices martial arts of listening to this, you have a very classic arm bar, which you find in judo, you find in sambo, you find variations in kung fu, you find it in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's very popular. In fact, I think it's one of the most popular methods of victory in BJJ competition. Mm-hmm. And in real life, in real combat situations, you will never use it. It is absolutely useless to you because it is only good to incapacitate the arm of an opponent trying to threaten you with a weapon. Mm-hmm. assuming you're in a position of desperation where you get to a point of using an arm lock while the person you're hurting is wielding the weapon, you have to be able to justify that in court. And no court is going to go, yeah, yeah, it was totally cool. You destroyed this person's arm and their ability to make a living at work. Yeah. Unless you can prove they had a knife and they were trying to stab me. Yeah. And like, to give you an example of the severity of that, uh, during just before COVID or during COVID, I can't remember which, but there was a case in Toronto where a, a trans female sex worker was attacked by a client and he stabbed her multiple times in the abdomen and thigh. In the struggle, she managed to get the knife from his hands 
and stab him in self-defense, and he died from his wounds, but she did not. And when it went to court, she got manslaughter. Wow. And that the Canadian court system is extremely biased against the use of force. The argument is, if she got the knife out of his hand, then she should have run from him wow. and called for help. It's like That's how they kind of see it. So... Yeah. If you put yourself in a situation where you're being stabbed to death and you're not allowed stabbing them back without going to jail for manslaughter. Yeah, so when you get to like an arm bar or something, you'll never use it. Even if you get an opportunity to use it, which in 18 years of work I never did, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be justified using it. It's an extreme situation. So, you know, I think the only time you can maybe get away with it is if you're a very petite woman and you have proof you've been sexually assaulted and you effectively use it to overcome your opponent in some way. Mm-hmm. But even that is a mess because to prove you've been sexually assaulted means you need to have a rape kit showing positive that you've been raped, which means you've already been raped. So the terrible you know, flaw yes, of the court yeah, system exactly. is if you've actually defended yourself from sexual assault, you don't have proof that you were sexually assaulted. Yeah. So even then, you can't use an arm lock because yeah. you're not going to be able to go to court and say, definitively, I got raped for sure. Right? So it's, it's a mess. Like, yeah. court system affects a lot. How do you disentangle it? So yeah, it's, it's, it's impossible. It's, everything you, you train for in real life is about um, de-escalation, mm-hmm. holding, arresting, retaining. Mm-hmm. And the whole point behind handcuffs is I didn't hurt them significantly or at all. I put them in restraints for their safety and for mine. Yeah. So most of what you want to focus on in the law enforcement world is the most effective way to put a person in restraints without harm to you or to them. And in that way, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Greco wrestling, Sambo are extremely useful yeah. because there's a lot of live rolling and a lot of live practice. Yeah. But many of the submissions you use, which are fun in the competitive realm and still useful to know, you will not effectively use them in real life, in a real life fight. So going back to teaching, you know, I would start teaching and I had people, I remember one guy from Toronto BJJ was very critical of it. And they're like, you don't know enough. You're not even ranked. Da, da, da. But this is a guy who had won several competitive medals and never himself, never by his own admission, been in a real fight outside of the gym. And so you have this massive disconnect. It's not at all unlike... An academic who studies and researches yeah. in the medical field versus a doctor who's clinically practicing. They're, the two worlds are radically different. Mm-hmm. And so the researcher might have an opinion on the subject, but the clinicians are like, no, no, in real life, that isn't working, or that is working, or this mm-hmm. is working, or this is yeah. the same thing. This is what we're seeing with patients, actually, yeah. Yeah. as opposed to you, like, yeah. on your ivory tower hypothesizing. For sure. And the, the researcher has more overall effect and clout with shaping policy hospital practice, hospital policy than the clinician does, but they're not practicing clinically, right? So it's a, yeah. it's a similar thing, very similar thing. So I started teaching now, I've been teaching probably for the better part of over a decade officially, maybe like 11, 12 years, but a little over a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, BJJ competitively, I didn't start teaching that officially until I really had like a purple belt. Yeah. Because they're very adamant. Purple belt is like bare minimum for teaching. There were, you know, the all class would cover as a blue belt. But sure. I was teaching before I ever took to competitive instruction. I was already instructing for security purposes and stuff. Yeah. So it's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you find teaching instructs your ability to like actually perform yourself? Um, it's very enlightening. 
because when you really get into the nuances of anything, like my, my two areas of expertise really are boxing and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. When you really get into the nuances of it, you really, you kind of realize that you've streamlined your approach in say Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to a kind of avenue to specific to yourself. specific to yourself. And then students come at you with questions about avenues you don't even like. Mm-hmm. And then you have to know those answers and you're not an expert you're not using them. So then you start to rely a lot on other coaches who are experts in those avenues. Mm-hmm. Materials and instructional tutorial videos and stuff that have answers of detail and nuance that you wouldn't have gotten elsewhere. Yeah. So, you know, one example for me is X-Guard or, or Dilla Eva. Yeah. I, I've, I've never used them. If you use them in a real fight, you're just going to die. Period. <laughs> but they're very effective competitively. Yeah. So a lot of people want to use them competitively. And then you, when you teach, they, of course, they're going to have questions for you and you need to be able to answer those questions. So it broadens your knowledge of it in a massive way. It does benefit you quite a bit. I, I, I benefited a lot from having to learn these things, mm-hmm. to know how to defend them, mm-hmm. to know how to handle them competitively, to mm-hmm. develop an antithesis to that problem. So I like that it, it happened, but there's a huge curve there. Yeah, interesting. And then how do you like uh, adjust for the fact that you know this is probably not going to be effective in a, in a real fight? This is more of a competitive thing. Is it more of just educating that yeah, it's happening? Or it's, it's a bit of a... How do you overcome it yourself as the instructor? I don't know how to phrase it, but all you can really do is say to the student, I have life experience, profound amounts of it, <laughs> that lead me to the firm conclusion, this thing you want to pursue, this avenue you want to pursue, isn't going to be very useful to you in a situation of survival. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the most part, the answers I get when I bring it up is just, I don't care. Right. And it's, right. it's sort of that willful ignorance of, I'm only here to exercise Mm-hmm. I'm only here to compete or enjoy myself. Mm-hmm. I'll never be in a fight in real life. This is just something I'm doing for fun. Mm-hmm. And they're reasonable arguments. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's not necessarily... Yeah, not everyone's you know, made to have like 14... A lot of people are going to be able to say it, especially people who are middle-upper class who've never been exposed to these like worlds of realms of violence that exist. They're, they're going to be able to avoid a lot of that stuff. So you can't convince them of it. All you can do is just say one time, like, you know, there are better avenues for self-preservation. Mm-hmm. But if they want to pursue it, they pursue it. And ultimately, that's where the significant degree of weakness that we see across all the martial arts comes from. There is a trend, historically. The martial art is sort of hit upon by a culture because it is perceived to be of significant use and effect in survival situations. And then after X amount of time, typically 20 to 30 years from what I've seen transpires, that art is basically a ghost of its former self and absolutely useless. And you're seeing that now with BJJ, for sure. There's all these memes of like, someone invades a guy with BJJ's house and he's just like, let's get back, mount me! And that's, that's, that's a real thing, it is. Yeah. My clothes guard is real good. My clothes guard is good. All you have to do is get on top of me and you're mine! You know? Yeah, and like, again, they're gonna, I'm just gonna play sport, whatever, and, and the, the problem ultimately is the monetization of that. You open a gym, you have bills to pay and you want to make a profit. Mm-hmm. Your student base says, we really like Dilly Eva. Mm-hmm. We want to study Dilly Eva. Mm-hmm. And you as the coach 
if you're not focused on profit, you can say, I don't care what you want to study. I'm preparing you to survive. But if you're focused on profit, if you say that, they're going to go, well, we're going to go to a gym that does teach the EVA and you're going to lose all your money and not make a living. So you end up actually, the people in charge at any martial arts club are not the black belts. They're absolutely the white belts, predominantly for sure, the white belts. Mm-hmm. The white belts will get the most attention because you have the highest number of them. Mm-hmm. The white belts, like, when I started mm-hmm. in the BJJ, which is around the time I met Gary, like, you would go in and they'd be like, okay, today all you're going to do is just, like, shrimps for two hours. Like, <laughs> I don't want to shrimp for two hours. They'd be like, I don't give a shit. That's what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Because they're not making money off you. You're there because you want to be there. But now, you know, it's so popular. You can go to a place and you okay, we're just going to, we're going to do some shrimps. And the student's like, I don't want to do it. They won't show up to your class again. That's it. Mm-hmm. You just lost your student base. So mm-hmm. the students dictate, and it's, it's that whole, it's a very, very common in every field of, of expertise. You hire an expert, ironically, because you need their expertise, but then you proceed to tell them what to do. You yeah. hire the, you hire the renovation specialist and go, but I want the wall to be this way. And the renovation guy's like, no, no, walls are built in this fashion. No, no, I want it this way. Okay, fine. It's going to yeah. break. Whatever. You yeah. Know. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then with regards to martial arts specifically, I guess the, so for a lack of a better word, like the watering down of like the efficacy, let's say, of the martial art for self defense. Like, uh, I don't know too much about the history of martial arts, but, uh, the, maybe a little bit of what I do know with regards to like judo. Mm-hmm. I think that was something that happened to judo as well. Oh, yeah. There's, um, Big time. uh, I guess the famous name in judo is Hikaru Kano. Yeah. And he, like, the last conversation I had about this, somebody explained to me that he wanted to make judo a symbol of Japanese culture that he yes. could, that you could share to the world yes. in a way that, you know, they could be proud of. So he, let's say took out the more violent aspects of yes. of the martial art to make it more of a sport that Near could be a, like a point life. sport yeah. let's let's say yeah. that would uh and kind of a similar thing happened with judo to what you're just you were describing let's let's get into the history of martial arts a little bit and, and talk about that sure is that, yeah. is that a fair description or yeah, a little bit more detail uh so i i Pretty well read. So this one's uh, The Way of Judo. It's a portrait of Vigaro Kano. Yes, I recognize that. Uh, John Stevens is on uh, the author here. And th- this book is probably one of the better books written specifically about him and, and the beginning of judo. And to the point you're making, he actually had uh, something like 27 or 30 students in his first school. And it was just around the time that he was sort of um, choosing it ideally over like his job as a primary school teacher. And in this book, it actually goes through the prominent Japanese students that he had and what they did with what they learned from him. And with the exception of one of these like 27 or so students, they were all soldiers, spies, and they lied to Higuro and told him that they were there for athletics and that they wanted to learn peacefully. And he was a pacifist. And he, he didn't have a means by which to discover their, their true nature. Sure. And so he just taught them thinking he was teaching sort of like uh, a concept that would, that would yeah, share Japanese culture with the world. And then he literally took what they learned from him. And then he ran off and like used it in the sphere of war. And he was so disillusioned by that that he started to move toward taking dangerous elements out of it and making it more of a sport format. 
And when he did that, there's rumor milling about the idea that he may have sent students he really favored to each of the major continents across the world around the time they were considering the Olympics, which is 64, I think, was when, um, who was it? Just having a brain fart. It was his, one of his best students who wrote the canon of judo, Kizumifun. So around that time, that's when you had like Maeda and a few others going to Brazil, which had the largest population of Japanese outside of Japan. You had members that trained under Higuro Kano go to like Russia. Um, and at that time, Stalin actually took from the Russian who learned from Higuro Kano the elements of judo, put that guy in actually literally into prison for two years before he was executed. Jesus. And then claimed to create Sambo thereafter, which became like one of Russia's national sports, which is mm-hmm. directly from judo. This is all historically documented. Yeah. Yeah. Judo players going to like New York was a really prominent place. London was a prominent place. France was another prominent place. So there's like, before it was called judo, he actually did call it Kano Jiu Jitsu. Mm-hmm. And like, I have a textbook at home from 1910 of Kano Jiu Jitsu. And there's so many misunderstood elements. Like, Kano himself did not wear waiki. There's this whole like spiritual purity element that you see the traditionalists and competitors who are like, oh, it's about showing spiritual purity and being clean. So, no. In the 1910 Kano Jiu-Jitsu book, Kano is depicted in a photo in every one of the demonstrations wearing black pants with knee pads sewn into them and a sleeveless gi that is a, a natural undyed cotton. So it's not white, it's like a creamish color. And it has no sleeves. And it had no sleeves because the sleeves seemed silly because then the person who grabbed the sleeves. <laughs> so similar to our wave of no-gi BJJ, yeah, yeah. Kano was interested in not being able to be grabbed. And the jacket was just to cover his shirt because it was not yeah. polite to be nude. Right? Sure, yeah, yeah. So when he did that, there was this massive movement toward um, removing more dangerous elements. So like there used to be a very prominent um, sweep called rice bale sweep. And in the 84 Olympics, somebody broke a femur with it. So they, they removed it. They were like, it's illegal, done. And basically a rice bell sweep is what in BJJ now is pulling guard. And when we call it knee reaping, but a knee reap is a rice bell sweep. And so BJJ, which is judo, it's just Nawaza judo, is already going through the same motions that judo and the Olympic Committee went through from 60 through 90. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now you have a point with judo where due to the lack of popularity of, of people watching it, they're struggling and they're floundering to try to make ways to make it um, have a higher uh, viewer retention. And a lot of it is, is I wouldn't even personally say that it's actually that people have lost interest in it so much as they've lost interest in legacy media. They yeah. just aren't watching this stuff on television. They're watching yeah. stuff on the internet. Exactly. Right? And as long as long dead bloated agencies like the CDC <laughs> have exclusive contract on yeah. judo or, or sorry, on, on Olympics, Olympics yeah. they're not like they're going to decide based on their outdated old world rating systems what is popular. And they're like when you compare legacy media's ability to project and understand interests of a, of a viewer group to internet behavioral surplus capture. It just they're 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 done. They're out of their league, right? So yeah. a lot of it has to do with that, I think. But. Mm-hmm. Overall, that the history is deeply misunderstood because this keeps on happening. Mm-hmm. And keep getting this revisit of things. Even the UFC, the UFC is an octagon. Yeah. And when when the UFC was was originally founded, a lot of the 
a lot of the edginess was that it was an octagon. It was a cage. Yeah. But you got in a cage. You couldn't yeah, get out. Yeah, you're an animal. Well, <laughs> in, in, cage. in pugilism, which is the correct word for boxing, okay? Okay. Boxing, boxing is, is called boxing because it's in a box. Pugilism, which is what it's actually called, originally took place in a ring, a, a rope in a circle in the dirt, or a rope with an enclosed environment. Mm-hmm. And still to this day, in illegal boxing matches, illegal pugilism matches in like city UK, they'll they'll create like a dirt ring and they'll put up walls around it. So it's just like the UFC. The UFC, the Americans thought they were coming up with this whole new way of doing things. So yeah, they're yeah. actually just returning yeah, yeah. To, to the way pugilism originally was. And so when you call boxing because it's in a box, calling a boxer because they're in the box. That's <laughs> one of my pet peeves to this day when you go to a fight and people are like, Get in the ring. I'm like, it's not a ring. It's literally a square. It's a box. It's, it's like, what are you talking? Like, the cage is not a cage. It's a ring, right? Like, and we because someone coins the phrase, the, the name carries on. Yep. And the biggest misconceptions overall, really, with martial arts history, have to do principally with language. You're dealing with linguistics of a radically different nature because of the the, the variation of culture. Mm-hmm. So if you go all the way back to the very beginning points, mm-hmm. and a person can argue, you know, every culture has its own form of fighting and blah, blah. Okay, great. But documented what we can conclusively see is more or less the Western martial arts, which is pugilism, wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, those arts came out of Greece yeah. and from Greece went to Rome. Yeah. And the Romans became Roman Catholic. And the Catholic Church in all of the areas Rome conquered led to colonial powers. And colonialism of Roman Latin descent was like Spain, Italy, France, United Kingdom, times Britain, or Britannia. Yeah. They, you know, they then took like North America as Canada. America was originally a British colony. You had like South America was originally Spanish colony, etc., etc. Yeah. So those Latin arts from Greece, Rome, were spread to those cultures. The Eastern martial arts, which we typically associate with Japan, actually started in India, mm-hmm. and they went from India through China to Japan, and from Japan to South America, and then to other other parts like Russia, Europe. North America. Mm-hmm. And so the mishmash we see and the Korea in there somewhere too. Yeah, with well, Korea, Korea was largely connected to Japan through China. And China mm-hmm. was the major influencer from that, but they took everything they had from India. Mm-hmm. And that all happened with all the confusion therein, largely due to language. And as an example of that, the English word for pugilism, we say it's like boxing. So it's pugilism, technically the slang terms boxing, boxing, right? Okay. So in India, and this is this is really well documented in a book called um, The Way of Warrior, which is a paradox of martial arts, Howard Reed and Michael Crocher. Um, the original source out of India was actually, I'm gonna look up the pronunciation so I don't butcher it. Yeah, no worries. Um, it was an art that's still practiced there and still not for money. You cannot learn Kalari Payat. I think, I think I'm saying that right. K-A-L-A-R-I-P-A-Y-I-T. Kalari Payat cannot be learned for money. You, it's only a religious practice. And you have to basically present yourself before a Kalari Payat temple. 
and they will take you in after X amount of days, and then you have to learn all this stuff. And it's you like have to fight club. You have to stay in front. Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you can see like there are various forms of kalaripaya that are discussed here. Yeah. Um, out of South India, and you can see like training regiments where they're doing a lot of acrobatic maneuvers. They're pulling on sheets like elastic bands here, like you see in judo schools. Here you've got a, he's pulling his arm behind his back. He's shoving the, the, his head forward. Massage is something the masters do to the young students to keep them fit. You have blessings. There's them doing push-ups and, and line drills. These forms are very resemblant of Kung Fu. And what happened was um, Kalari Payat was both a form of wrestling and of striking. And it was principally developed as a means of physical education for spiritual purposes. And the ultimate goal was to condition the body in order to maintain the rigors of meditation and the demands of mental training. Uh, and we actually have a, the same thing in the Western arts. People don't realize this, but we had boxing or pugilism. We had wrestling. And in the gladiatorial arena, we had swordsmanship, we had spearmanship, we had all these competitions, and they were, the intention of conditioning the body for rigors of combat was also to condition the mind to be able to think, which was largely developed through stoicism. Yeah. Right? yeah. And stoicism is a practice that basically insists that your body has to be conditioned in order to be healthy. And so they concluded your mind has to be conditioned in order to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So under Stoic philosophy, every day you're supposed to be studying to be able to control your mental state, your focus, your will, your ideology, and drive yourself toward improvement. Mm -hmm. And what's really fascinating about Stoicism is more recently in the medical field, we have now concluded that neuroplasticity is in fact real. And we're now referring to it as neuroplastic law. Yeah. And neuroplastic law is actually how I got over my post-traumatic <laughs> stress disorder through the work of Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and some others. Mm -hmm. And when you really start to look into neuroplasticity, it is absolutely, in essence, it is stoicism in practice. It's the concept that mm -hmm. whatever you're thinking, mm -hmm. if you drive it in a direction and you're disciplined about that thought process, mm -hmm. you will mm -hmm. cause that thought process to become faster more effective, more efficient, mm -hmm. more likely to occur, etc. And that goes both directions. Subconscious. 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 Yeah. Conscious. So if you're, you know, people do this out there, and this is a caution for anyone, you know, listening to the podcast. If you're the type of person to do, like, say you go to your jiu-jitsu practice, and you perform an arm bar, and you don't get it perfect, and you go, ah, I suck. You are actually conditioning yourself to think you suck. Yeah. And you're going to get better at thinking you suck. Mm -hmm. You're going to find more evidence that you suck. Yeah. You're going to be quicker to conclude you suck. You're going to find other ways that everyone sucks. Yeah. Your your brain actually hyper evolves to find patterns of suck. Yeah, yeah. Whereas yeah, if you sure. if you do an armbar and you don't get it right the first time and you go, I will master this. Yeah. You're more likely to try again. You're more likely to find mastery more efficiently, mm -hmm. more effectively in a quicker time. And this is all neuroplasticity in motion, which was still a concept. So getting back to the east with India. Um, Kalari Payat yeah. uh, was basically seated in Buddhism. And in India, there's a lot of religious denominations. There's Hinduism, there's Punjabi, there's, there's Sikh and Muslim denominations. But this was really seated in Buddhism. And no one knows this conclusively, but it's firmly believed and accepted that a Buddha by the name of Buddha Dharma 
decided to take his teachings from Kalaripayas and other aspects of Indian culture and went through China. And he, he basically exposed the Chinese to the concept of the intention of teaching Buddhism, but the Chinese largely just took the fighting forms, mm-hmm. and Chinese Buddhism was vastly different in its understanding and then became separated a lot from those arts. Yeah. yeah. Now, Kalari Payat is a loose translation of like self-development, right? Mm-hmm. When you get into Kung Fu, really what you're saying is the Mandarin term for kickboxing. You're just saying kickboxing for Kung Fu, for Kung Fu right? Okay. And if you're saying soft form kickboxing, you mean wrestling and kicking and punching, mm-hmm. which is MMA, mm-hmm. mixed martial arts. And when we're on the subject of language, yeah. it's not mixed martial arts. <laughs> because when you say martial arts with an S, plural, you mean multiple martial arts. So when you put mixed in front of it, it's a misnomer. Yeah. It, it was coined that because they wanted a way to separate it for sales purposes. Oh, this is new. It's yeah. not martial arts. It's mixed martial arts. <laughs> that's not accurate. That's not correct English. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. With the John, what was the, uh, John McCarthy. John McCarthy. He, yeah. he, he, he supposedly claims to have, uh, invented. Yeah. And it's gone on for sales purposes. <laughs> you see it on every sign out there, but yeah, yeah. it's technically not correct English. It's a redundancy. Anyway. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, from China, it moved to Japan and you have several areas of Japan. Now, Japan's a fascinating cultural thing at the time. It, you have the Tokugawa shogunate and then you have the other shoguns to follow. And because of the extreme, yeah, extreme xenophism, xenophobia, the extreme racism, the extreme feudalism, and the most successful, most brutal, long-lived totalitarian regime of power in human history, they were extremely uh, sectioned, cut off. No foreigner was allowed to enter Japan. So you had this port city, which was basically um, where karate was born. Right. And mm. karate is literally that, that area's language or dialect meaning like foot and fist or hand to hand combat. And you see that all over the place. When you go Krav Maga, it's mm. Hebrew form for closed combat. Mm. When you go French, you say savat, which means old shoe, like fighting, which is kickboxing. It's their translation yeah. of kickboxing. Yeah, yeah. In English, we say boxing. And then, you know, wrestling is judo. It's just, it's all dialectual. So, when you say to somebody, I don't study kickboxing, I study savat, what you've actually said is, I don't study kickboxing, I study kickboxing. Yeah. Different yeah. When you say, I, I don't study kickboxing, I study karate, you said, I don't study kickboxing, I study kickboxing. And you're not, you're failing to understand that that language is the difference, not the art form. These are all the same thing. And why they, why they appear different is because of that language. So when you get into like a sport concept, if I've opened a gym, and everyone in my area is teaching kickboxing. And someone comes in and goes, I want to learn. What do you teach? And I go, kickboxing. And they go, well, so does Trevor. He teaches it. So does this guy, that girl, this guy, that girl. Mm-hmm. If I go, oh, no, but, but what they teach is kickboxing. I teach savat. Yeah, I'm karate. I'm karate. And they go, ooh, that sounds new. I'm yeah, going to do yeah. that. And a prime example of this is Thai boxing. Okay? Yeah. So for those of you who don't know the history of this, um, Siam, the nation... Before it became Thailand. Yeah, it was a kingdom that incorporated Thailand, Cambodia, maybe parts of Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. Laos. Laos, yeah. Yeah. So in Siam, there was a cultural exchange with the British. 
the British went there um, literally as like a formality. They sent like royalty, like Dutch, Dutchess, that sort of whatever the equivalent was, Earl or, you know, of England. Yeah. And one of the exchanges they, as a gift they gave to the King of Siam was a boxing match on demonstration of boxing. And they loved this pugilism so much that they were like, we want to do it. So they left behind pugilism coaches who then taught the Siamese, which then became the Thai. Mm -hmm. And the Thai took that boxing and they changed the rules so that you could also hit with elbows and knees and kicks. Yeah. And then you have Thai boxing, right? And now Thai boxing has taken off in huge fashion here in Canada. Yeah. And we've had boxing directly from the United Kingdom because we're a colonial vestige. Yeah. For as long as Canada's existed. Exactly. And now you have people coming from Thailand to teach Canadians how to do the thing that they learned from the fucking English. Yeah. Like that's literally like if I went to Brazil yeah. and went, let me teach you how to do jujitsu. And yeah. they were like, oh yeah, sounds great. Yeah. All I'd have to do is change the name and go, oh, this is CJJ. Yeah. And go, oh, it's new. It's yeah. Bit. So the language is a major component and that, that, that element of history constantly gets confused and lost. Mm -hmm. And when you start to see past the language and you realize this is all the same thing as just some expression, mm -hmm. it drastically changes appreciations of it. And mm -hmm. the expression is affected by the sport. And that's the key component. So, for example, in self-defense, if I'm boxing to preserve my life mm -hmm. and I'm in a fight in a parking lot, which I have been in way too many, hence the PTSD I recovered from. Yeah. I am concerned in a parking lot about a number of things. One, who has a brick? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Two, smart. how many of my attackers are there? Yeah. So one thing I used to really do quite a bit when I was attacked by multiple people was I would maneuver myself to fight those groups between two cars. They would have to climb over the car and I'd see them coming and otherwise would bottleneck them between the two cars so I could handle one or two at a time instead of getting overwhelmed by four or five surrounding me. Right? Yeah, makes sense. In that situation, Logical. I'm sure you can imagine, it's not a big step to imagine, I need to be highly mobile. Yeah. So my boxing, if you see me boxing in a club, I look like a psychopath. <laughs> because conventional prize fighting, ladies and gentlemen, is done in a box. Yeah. Not a ring. Yeah. In a box. Yeah. And in that box, which is a certain measurement, right? Yeah. Um, the fighters can only move so far. They can't get away from each other. Now, there's a reason for this. It's because the boxing match is meant for people to watch it. It's supposed to be entertaining. And if the space is so large that the fighter can keep running from each other, then it becomes boring. Now, you think of UFC fights like Silva, where he just was taunting, but his fighter, his opponent was engaging. There's all sorts of fights where one fighter chose to run more. And recently, with Nama Yunez and yeah, Rose and uh, the other one, Carlos Esparza. Esparza. Oh, man, everyone was talking about it was a snoozer. It was disappointing because they were staying away from one another. But here's the thing: in self-defense, that's a good method. I don't want to get knocked out. I don't want to risk it because if you knock me out in a real fight in a parking lot, you might step on my skull and kill me. Absolutely. You might beat me while I'm unconscious and leave me brain damaged severely. Mm -hmm. So I want to be mobile. When I go into a gym and I practice on a bag, I want my bag, my heavy bag, is nine feet of chain. So that when I hit it, it swings wildly far. So I have to chase it and run from it because I want to practice moving uh -huh. lots. Whereas when you're in a box in pugilism and you're boxing, yeah. you're in a, you want to hold the bag because there's not a lot of space to move. So you want to learn how to fight close to your opponent 
in a pocket so it's entertaining for the crowd but you might win that fight mm-hmm. you don't have to worry so much about getting knocked out because you may lose the fight from a knockout but most of the time you're not going to die and the ref's going to stop the fight and you're going to be given immediate medical attention not so in real life no. so the drastic differences no. are what make the sport the sport versus self-defense self-defense and that applies with every version of this so in Muay Thai if you go to Thailand or even look it up on YouTube because internet hey yeah. um, you'll see that in Thai fights if one of the opponents evades strikes too much or moves too much laterally or moves too much backwards if it starts to be a fight of chase mm-hmm. they get booed and in, ma- in, in Thai culture, the masculine viewpoint is you're moving forward to be tough. Yeah. If you move backward, you're weak. And so the methodology of the yeah. art reflects the methodology seen in the competitive sport. Mm-hmm. And this is true across the spectrum. We've got BJJ where people are like, we're going to pull guard. But the joke is like, you coward. Saboka's mm-hmm. like, that's stupid. You guys don't even punch. Yeah. It's all based on methodology of sport. Yeah. So the right. difference of the appearance of art has a lot to do with, firstly, the language, and secondly, the sport. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's amazing how language, like even like you were saying, villages that are only like half an hour, 40 minutes apart from oh, yeah. other with different languages that yeah. and dude, have an impact there on are, expression. I've literally met, there are forms of Kung Fu. I remember meeting one guy, his style of Kung Fu was actually based on bad breath. I'm like, yeah, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. So this dude had committed his life to eating rancid, terrible shit to the point where he actually didn't brush his teeth. He let his teeth rot. So literally when he would go to fight a person, he would get so close to them that people would actually start retching from disgust, which would expose them to like combination of striking. And this is now a cultural art in that region. So there are people keeping it alive, committing their whole life to this, rotting their teeth. And now the rotting the teeth thing, I'd like to speak just briefly on the side there. I read this book called A Brief History of a Smile, which is about dentistry, but had a fascinating little tidbit that further adds to martial arts history. Most people don't know this, but until almost the 19th century, it was common practice in both Japan and China to paint your teeth black with lead-based paint. What? But yeah, they literally thought black teeth were beautiful. It was okay. it was a cosmetic appearance of beauty. Wow. And literally to this day, that's why you've seen a lot of in Asian cultural environments, and I speak as someone who lived in China a year and a half, where uh, women will eat with the hand in front of their mouth. And they'll speak and laugh and put their hand in front of their mouth. Yeah, yeah that's actually, common with Asian people. It's actually because this was a cultural practice till 1900. You don't just lose the politeness of covering your mouth for bad breath. But the lead-based paint would rot their teeth and it would cause temporary or permanent bouts of insanity from lead exposure and horrible breath. So the horrible breath forms of Kung Fu were a natural evolution of that actual practice. Oh, wow. And most people don't know this, but the reason, for example, you, you say French kissing when we refer to open mouth kissing yeah. is because the French who originally France was built in the Fort of Letitia, which was a Roman military settlement. Yeah. And it was the first area of that European mainland that had baths and oral hygiene. So the French were actually French kissing before the rest of the planet because they were brushing their goddamn teeth. Okay. So their breath was not so repulsive. They would actually want to kiss. Get it? Yeah. We, we know historically, like, there's all these jokes about British having bad teeth. Yeah, yeah. Historically, it comes from the fact that they didn't brush their teeth. Yeah. So they didn't kiss open mouth. That's why it was called French kissing. 
But in Asia, there was this, literally, you paint your teeth black. So there were, this affected a style created a Kung Fu all of its own. Mm-hmm. So these cultural expressions are, are literally a, a kind of part of the vestige of what makes an art an art. And you have wildly different concepts based on exposure and stuff. And for example, Okinawan karate um, isn't karate at all. It's Kung Fu. Plain yeah. and simple. And yeah. you can look this up. There's a there's a YouTube video by the Karate Guy. That's literally his YouTube handle. You can look it up. He's, he's documented history very well. He's very informed. And it was actually, there was like four or five Kung Fu practitioners teaching Kung Fu in Okinawa. And the reason that was relevant is because at the time, Okinawa was a trading port, principally for Japan. So no weapons were allowed. And it's because there were so many cultures coming into this trading port. They were constantly getting these huge brawls. You imagine, like, we've seen this here in Canada. If you take a group of Trinis and you drop them in a nightclub with a bunch of Jamaicans or a bunch of Somalians, or or you take white cornbread country folk in a country bar and you drop them into, like, a Spanish soiree, there's going to be confusion, right? It can lead to problems, right? (laughs) So Okinawa had this problem. So they banned all weaponry. You couldn't carry swords, knives, guns, nothing. Everyone had to check their weapons when they got to port. So when these fights would break out, they were all hand-to-hand. So there was a serious investment with the locals to learn (laughs) how to fight. And so these Kung Fu experts saw an opportunity, not unlike us, right? You had the Brazilians who, who basically all learned judo out of Brazil and then they went, oh, the Americans don't even know their, you know, what is this or that. So they came to America and they went, oh, we're teaching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And the Americans were like, oh, that's new. It wasn't yeah. new. It was Judo. Yeah, it was Judo yeah. Right? So it's the same thing. You had Kung Fu teachers go over to Okinawa and start teaching Kung Fu. Well, Higuro Kano was actually, by this time, was a respected schoolmaster. And that means he was a member of government. So this would be akin to someone from, say, the state of California who's in the educational authority visiting as a diplomat Toronto to inspect Toronto school systems and say that diplomat has an interest in martial arts, they might want to drop into a school. So this is a situation. Higuro Kano goes, goes to the Okinawan Islands. He hears about this form of striking that's happening there. He's interested in striking because at that time, Judo still had striking. So he wants to go see a demonstration. Well, they find out Higuro Kano is coming to teach or coming to watch. He's racist as shit. But the Japanese, and I'll get into this in a little bit, but the Japanese were horrendous people. They were horrendous people. Okay? Not anymore. Back then. Back then. Back then. They were allied with the Nazis. Let's put this into context. Allied with the... They were like, the Nazis are killing the Jews. Let's be friends. Not good people. Right? So, not to to take away from Hiro Kano, who had very good intentions, but nonetheless was in a racist country, in a racist time, in a racist war... Yeah, you, so, you judge people based on the context. Exactly. The not on and like, the current... Any person from Asia will tell you the Japanese and Chinese do not get along. Okay, so <laughs> yeah. he goes to Okinawa and they're like, oh crap, if we teach Kung Fu, which is a Chinese art, in a Japanese colonial area, we're going to get hung. So the day of... Karate Guy Darkness is YouTube. So the day of Girl Candle's arrival, those five Kung Fu instructors randomly chose names for their karate and walked up on stage and this is my style of karate. They were completely bullshitting. <laughs> they were just teaching Kung Fu. But Hiro Kano had never really seen Kung Fu too much at that point. So he went, oh, this karate is amazing. And it became karate. But it was always just Kung Fu. Yeah. That's it. And, karate, and that's where that language becomes so relevant. Because karate was just that dialect. They were teaching Kung Fu. In the same so way that someone who sees judo, say in France, 
comes to Canada and sees somebody practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and he goes, you're practicing Nawaz of Judo. Mm-hmm. And you go, no, no, it's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He's like, yeah. no, it's Nawaz of Judo. It's the same thing, but your language is, is causing the difference, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that, that, that was a major component of all this stuff. It was a really big factor. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It, these history, like, there's not a lot of discussion of it because you have to read a ton. So to give me an example, like, I have Asperger's style autism. So I read phenomenal amounts of books. And, yeah. like, uh, some of the recommendations I have is, um, The Secrets of the Samurai. This is an excellent, well-researched PhD level historical dive into Japanese Tokugawa era and beyond samurai culture. Cool, uh, cover. Yeah, cool cover. And then to complement that, and this is very important, you have to complement that. Yeah. Uh, this is called the that's a small one. Budusho, Budosho Shinshu. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but this is actually the Samurai Warrior Code of the 17th century. This wow. is like the handbook of moral guidance and judgment for samurai. Okay, so you read that to get a historical perspective and you read the small book to get into the head. In the head mindset. Who were, who were, like, and then this book is called Bushido, Soul of Japan. It's written so, by Inazo Nitobe. I'm a little bit familiar with the term Bushido. It's kind of like... Um, it's basically the way of war. It would be yeah, like saying yeah. um, soldiering, right? Mm-hmm. More or less, mm-hmm. like martial way. Mm-hmm. But this book is actually written by a guy who was born in Japan when the samurai were ruling and lived as the samurai were deposed and Japan industrialized and became an engine of modern warfare, eventually allying with the Nazis in World War II. Yeah, yeah. So he saw the end of what he calls chivalry, which is the European word for being a knight, yeah, because yeah. the samurai were knights yeah, in Japan. And he discusses how as an 11-year-old kid, it was a regular thing to go to the public market and see beheadings for people who stole bread. Holy cow. Right? And then oh he grows God. up. And in this book, it's really fascinating. He constantly laments the fact that chivalry is dying because it was such a noble way of life, like public beheadings and yeah. just noble way of life, right? Oh, my God. So, like, to give you an example of, of you know, his... Yeah, give us some quotes. Here's a quote here. Um... Those who had eyes could, to see could not weep enough. Those who had hearts to feel could not sympathize enough with the fate of many a noble and honest samurai who signally and irrevocably failed in his new and unfamiliar field of trade and industry through sheer lack of shrewdness in coping with the artful plebeian rival. When we know that 80% of the business houses fail in so industrial a country as America... Is it any wonder that scarcely one among a hundred samurai who went into the trade would succeed at new vocation? It will be long before it will be recognized how many fortunes were wrecked in the attempt to apply Bushido ethics to business methods of America. But it is soon patent to every observing mind the ways of wealth were not the ways of honor. In what respects uh-huh. then were they different? So he, he okay, goes so on about that thing that like when you switch over to like industrialization and let's let's call it capitalism. Yeah. That's maybe not the right term, yeah. but like the the honor system with the warrior is no longer yeah, applicable but, and those people are failing. Right. But to give you an idea of what the honor system of the warrior entailed, which again you can read in the Budo Show Sinshu and other like books, uh it was public law under the Tokugawa Shogunate. If if a samurai went into a village to a market and they asked someone a question who wasn't a samurai, if that person answered the question in any way that was deemed offensive to the samurai at the time, he had the legal right to cut their head off on the spot. So what ended up happening, common practice, was they would go into a market and they would say, I like that hat. 
How much is it? And if the merchant said ten dollars, the samurai go, "That's offensive." Cut his head off and then take the hat. Yeah. So when you see in film and television stuff, samurai riding the town, everyone fleeing in terror. Yeah. It was because the samurai could literally just kill you arbitrarily yeah. for whatever reason they wanted. Yeah. And when we get into that aspect of the history, I just like to touch on this because yeah. there are a lot of martial arts clubs and there are a lot of martial arts competitions and a lot of martial arts films and stuff that glamorize and romanticize samurais and ethos. You have these martial yeah. arts clubs where they teach kids to teach, you know, speak in Japanese, like counting Japanese and stuff. And listen, learning Japanese, great. It's awesome. Yeah. Understanding Japanese culture, current modern Japanese culture, wonderful. Samurai culture, not okay. <laughs> not okay. Okay. And you know, the, to give you an idea of what life was like, just roughly in that time period, and you'll read this in like Secrets of the Samurai and other books. In a city of say, um, you know, Ito or whatever, you would have gates that were like 25 feet high that surrounded every neighborhood. So picture the street you live on. And in that street, the, the city block from where we are right now to say, you know, halfway through Toronto, like Dufferin Lawrence down to like, uh, what's the next street? Um, well, let's take a little north. The next street from Dufferin Lawrence would be like Keelan Lawrence, right? So everything from Dufferin Lawrence to Keelan Lawrence is enclosed by a 25 to 50 foot high fence. That's wide enough across that three archers can walk in it easily with defended walls and they're looking down at everyone inside that gated enclosure and they every night close those gates every person born in that neighborhood would literally have to take on the trade of their parent so if you were born the son of a pig farmer you had no choice in the matter yep. you were a pig farmer and if you decided you didn't want to be a pig farmer and you tried to run away just run away or you tried to fight the guards, the samurai, or you offended the samurai, or you accidentally bumped into a samurai. They'd slam the gate shut and slaughter every family, every man, woman, and child in that enclosure. They'd just shoot them from the top of the fence until they were all dead. And then they would bring new families to populate the now deceased homesteads from some other prefecture and go, this is your fate. You're never changing. This is life. And this went on for like a thousand years. They were savage beyond reason. They were brutally violent. More so than other parts of the world. Way more so. Like, because they were successful. And this is the thing. This is why you don't hear about it that much. The successful genocides and successful oppressions don't get discussed because they were no, successful. No, no survivors. So no, the Armenian genocides were discussed for ages and are still denied by the Turkish because the Turkish were so successful yeah. that they got away with the Armenian genocides you know, to a degree. Oh, I did not know that. There you go. So you're familiar with that history. Oh, yeah. So you understand what I'm saying. Right. So that is like an example. So the same thing with Tokugawa showing it and showing it to follow it. So by the time industrialization occurred, you have to understand from the perspective of the writer of this book, The Soul of Japan, a lot of what was happening was that people were so sick of being terrified and slaughtered by the samurai mm-hmm. that when the Americans showed up and they were like, we have new engines of war, it, the justification for industrialization was on paper, we need to be able to defend Japan from enemies. Mm-hmm. But privately, everyone was like, this is the excuse we need to get rid of these horrible samurai. Yeah. 
They were oppressors. They were oppressors. So everyone was just jumping on board with industrialization for that exact region. Right. Reason, sorry. So and don't believe the last summer. So don't believe the last summer, right? Oh, so man. yeah, exactly. So <laughs> we had me. <laughs> yeah, the romanticism of it can can confuse people. So when you go to like tournaments where you know the the sigil for the tournament is like a samurai helmet or something, as romantic as it can be, you're really that would be no different than having a tournament with a swastika. Like, yeah, hey, yeah. <laughs> like, come and be honorable, noble. Like, it, yeah, you know, exactly. Now, as a caveat, this is where some of the confusion comes in. The samurai, many among them, not many, a few among them, were firm believers in Buddhism. Concepts of Buddhism that demonstrated that you want to honor life. And I had to read a lot into this. I lived in Asia. I studied Dozens and dozens of books and material. I've ordered books directly from India. The Buddha and his Dharma translated directly from India, directly from Cambodia, directly from Japan. So I've really delved into this. And basically, in the form of Buddhism that sort of took hold in Japan, the concept was essentially very simple, and it was this. There is no such thing as right and wrong. And to a degree, there isn't. And just a brief sidestep. I think rape is wrong. Absolutely. Me too. Without a shadow of a doubt. Believe me, people, there are countries in the world where rape is legal. Whoa. Legal. And in the countries in the world right now as we speak where rape is legal, they do not think rape is wrong. Yeah. And so the concept of right and wrong is argued to be more of a cultural concept than it was a phenomenal or universal truth. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that the Buddhists seem to agree on is that the only real principle evil is unnecessary suffering of a living organism. And even the Buddha Bhatsiva Gautama, who is the first Buddha after fashion was actually born into the warring class and was a famed archer and hunter. He didn't actually say, don't eat meat. What he actually said was, don't eat an animal that can't kill you back. Mm -hmm. So he would say, I don't hunt rabbit because they're harmless, and so it's dishonorable to make a harmless animal suffer. Mm -hmm. But if someone else has killed a rabbit, I won't waste the meat. I will eat the meat at the table if it's given to me. Mm-hmm. And I will hunt tiger because that thing can mm-hmm. kill me. It's not harmless. Yep. But when I hunt it, I'll hit it dead so it doesn't suffer. So the whole concept is not that violence is bad. Mm-hmm. It's that suffering is bad. And so mm-hmm. getting, you know, rape is dishonorable weirdly. And I, I don't mean this as a personal opinion. I mean this as like a Buddhist concept. Yeah. The Buddhist concept that rape is bad is not that rape is bad because it's aberrant or illegal, which is what I believe. It's because it's unnecessarily making a person suffer before they die. You're Mm -hmm. dishonoring life by making it suffer. Mm -hmm. So there were samurai who defected. Mm -hmm. Now, in order to do this, in order to defect as a samurai, you had to be so good at combat that no one could kill you if you tried. Kind of a hard task. It's kind of a hard task because so, people are going to team up on you. Yeah, <laughs> and think of you know if you practice martial arts, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, for example, or, or judo, or sambo, or boxing, or even karate to a degree, you have to be so good to be the best in the world. You you have to be the best in the world to be the samurai that defected. And when that happened, they would call them ronin, which is another way of saying man lost at sea, meaning man with no direction. And that's because the entire samurai ethos was built on the concept of serving a lord. Because it was a feudal system. The samurai was a knight after fashion, a soldier, who served his vassals and his lord as well. Mm-hmm. And so 
basically they were rejecting this concept. They were like, you're all corrupt, you're all greedy, you all abuse your power. Mm-hmm. The fact that I can kill someone who offends me should not allow me to kill them because their goods are too expensive, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So they would then wander. And um, a very famous wanderer who is Ronin was, uh, who everyone's probably read or heard about the book, the Book of Five Rings, was Musashi. Musashi. Musashi was a wandering Ronin, and that's why he was homeless. He slept out in the grass, and he was psychotic and didn't give a damn because he was living in this corrupt, horrific, brutally oppressive, violent regime. And only because he was so gifted in his swordsmanship could he kill any person that challenged him. So he was allowed to wander because everyone was terrified of the guy. That was the actual truth of it. Mm -hmm. And so what we in the West sort of venerate and romanticize as samurai aren't samurai. They were Roman. Mm-hmm. And so if you're posting the helmet, say, of the samurai for the purpose right. of celebrating the ronin who rejected the samurai, mm-hmm. this is a very different concept mm-hmm. than idealizing the samurai. Mm-hmm. This would be sort of like celebrating Schindler yeah. for liberating Jewish kids in Schindler's list yeah. versus celebrating the Nazis who yeah. are also German but bad, yeah, right? Exactly. Kind it's of different. Nuance, right? So. I, I'm just tired of going to clubs and then being like, Sarah! And I'm like, shut up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that. Like, yeah, I guess yeah. once you've read enough, you've read enough books, uh, it, I guess it, 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 it bothers you a bit more. <laughs> it's serious, because like, the samurai ethos is what's responsible for, say, like, the rape of Nanjing, which is one of the worst human rights violations of history. Yeah. So yeah. celebrating samurai culture, even if it's because it's, it's a place of ignorance or whatever, does a disservice to the victims of that historical event and many others. Wasn't samurai culture pretty much over by the time the rape of Nanjing happened? Well, the official designation of it was people weren't samurai anymore, but the culture persisted. The culture lived on, and many mm-hmm. of the culture's nasty practices continued. And, and we see the same thing here in the West. We have what we call hypermasculinity. Toxic. Toxic, actually. <laughs> but hypermasculinity like yeah. is present like in boxing culture. So a good example is when I teach boxing, I cannot stress this enough, ladies and gentlemen. I trained with Gary Gerrish, who is the nicest man outside of the ring. He's a great human being, and he has told me many times he does not regret his fighting career, and I want that to be clear. I'm not speaking for him, I'm speaking for myself. Gary Gerrish... Loves his life, loved his fighting career, and he, he has sort of come to terms with his dementia. I, on the other hand, saw his dementia unfold in front of me, and I cannot tell you enough, I can't stress enough how much you do not want dementia. Yeah. So when I... when Most I people who have family members... Would know, it, right. Yeah, so would pugilistic know. onset dementia, to give you an example, by the time Gary was 38, he was diagnosed pugilistic onset dementia, probable CET. I'm 39. Yeah. He was a year younger than me when he got diagnosed. And he, he, at that point, I remember we were, Dana went with him to Wimpy's to a diner and they sat him down and he ordered some soup. Dana was there. A few other friends of ours, Jason and Rue were there. And when the soup came to his table, Gary went, what's this? And the waitress went, the soup you ordered. He went, I didn't order the soup. And that's when everyone went, oh crap. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I teach boxing, I know that dementia is a real thing. So I only allow what I call technical sparring and touch sparring. Yeah. And that is when we're sparring. We're sparring at full speed, mm-hmm. but there is no momentum to the shot. Mm-hmm. And what that means is like I fast and then I just touch at the end of the shot. So mm-hmm. no one is coming out of sparring in my class with a headache. No one mm-hmm. is coming out of sparring in the class jostled, confused. Mm-hmm. If you've got a bloody nose when you spar, you've gone too hard, period. If you have a headache, way too hard, way too hard. Mm-hmm. You should come out of boxing 
not feeling any pain and feeling like you learn something. And for those of you who are in the grappling realm, you see Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Yeah. Going into sparring and boxing and smashing each other would be like going to a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu class and the black belt just tearing you apart, yeah. breaking your arm and going, come back next Tuesday. Yeah, it's not. Nah, it's and that's why boxing has largely died across Canada because people are sparring. But that's due to hyper-masculinity. Mm-hmm. Hyper-masculinity is this concept that like if you're not tough enough, you mm-hmm. can't continue. So you get in these boxing situations, really common in boxing clubs where they go to box and they're not sparring folks. They're not learning. They're just fighting. They're just brawling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're bloodying each other up. They're getting concussions and all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff. I have a friend very recently who had a serious concussion mm-hmm. and he's lost his mind. He's absolutely oh, upbringing. That's sad. Yeah, yeah, it's terribly sad. But that's due to hyper-masculinity. And that mm-hmm. is, we see that across lots of cultures and the samurai culture was like that. It was sort of yeah. their hyper-masculinity. Yeah. So by the time World War II had come, they were deep in the throes of that resistance to giving up samurai ethos. Because you got to understand, samurai existed as a culture that was xenophobic and repelled any entry from their border for over 250 years or longer. Long time. And then suddenly, in one generation, samurai are no good. Samurai can't... So if you're the son of a samurai, you're not just going to like stop believing in what your father's 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 yeah. father's 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 yeah, history. The yeah. whole history. So many of the soldiers who entered in World War II entered with the samurai ethos. I'm going to die in the service of the emperor. Mm-hmm. That was a major component of what drove the Reagan mansion. That was a major component of what drove the Manchurian War. A yeah. lot of the things that happened were because of that. Yeah, I mean, that mindset went on for a long time. Long time. Deep into World War II, to the end of past World War II with some of the uh, soldiers being stuck on certain islands where they uh, yeah. didn't know that the war ended and yeah, just the, continued the to occupy the islands. The actual samurai is literally about a guy who got stuck on an island and kept fighting, thinking Japan was still in the war for, what, 14 years after the war had ended? He didn't yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Exactly. it was a ridiculous number. It might have been even longer. Yeah. Like, they were dropping leaflets to let this guy know. Yeah, he, was, he like, thought it was psychological warfare. Yeah. He wouldn't give up. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. Because the idea that Hirohoto would give up was just unheard of. Like, there's no way he'll die fighting because it was the samurai ethos. Like, death yeah. before dishonor was the core mm-hmm. of that context, right? Mm-hmm. So, it was a big part of it. And mm-hmm. you you see it a lot, too. And In fact, there's another a good example of that is the triads. I don't know if you've ever heard of the triads. No, not so much. So, the triads are um, an organized crime family out of China. Okay, okay. yeah. It's and like calling, I've heard of, like, the... Calling them a family is not really accurate. It's just yeah. an organized crime syndicate, okay? Yeah. But where they are seen... The Rush Hour, I think I've heard yeah. the triads in Rush Hour. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> movie. Um, but there's, they, the birth of the triads is seated directly in martial arts history. Yeah, so this is, this is what happened. People, people, this is a very, very ancient history. And you can find this in uh, The Way of the Warrior. Um, you can also find this in uh, one of the books I have in the history of karate. I, I, I loaned it to a friend, so I couldn't bring it today. But Sorry. basically, this is what happened. Sometime around like the 15th century, I think. Uh, I'm not good with the dates, but I think it was around the 15th century. Um, the emperor of China at the time was in the middle of a coup. There was a coup rising against him, and he was, you know, very reasonably could stay to lose his monarchy. So he went to one of the most reputed Kung Fu cities in China. When we say Kung Fu city, we really mean like Kung Fu University, Kung Fu school. But it's it, it literally operated as its own city structure. They had their own wells and they had their own farms and so on, so on, so on. So it was like a city. So he goes to the city and he goes, uh, people are trying to kill me. People are trying to assassinate me. There's this coup against me. They're trying to dethrone the emperor. Will you help me? Will you protect me? The Kung Fu practitioners there at the city were all Buddhists. So they were like, we don't care. So he said, well, you know, think of the violence, the people, the suffering, so forth. You, you don't want unnecessary suffering. So they said, okay, we'll send 14 of our best 
to serve as your bodyguards. And in the war that followed, they saved his life numerous times, undefeated. They were phenomenal fighters. At the end of the war, he said to them, you did so well, I would like to reward you with high positions of power in the royal court and lots of money. Being Buddhist, they went, we don't want it. They went back to their city. That was it. They totally just, we don't care about any of your stuff. The grand, the son of the grandson of that emperor was in a similar situation one or two generations later, went back to that same Kung Fu city, and at this point that Kung Fu city had grown. And he said, I need protection again. So this time they sent 144 of their best. 144 of their best fighters from the Kung Fu city defended this emperor against several plots on his life, several attempts on his life. He was so impressed with them at the end of the war that he said to them the same thing, I want to reward you with positions in court and huge amounts of money. And they, being Buddhists, were like, we don't want it. We're going back to our city. We want to live in peace. And that's what they did. Well, several other members of the court of that emperor basically got into his ear and said, they refused that position in court and that money because they're allied with your enemies. And if you don't act now while they're not expecting it, if you don't go ahead and take them out now, they're going to rise against you. And 144 of them managed to defend and repel all these attacks. Think of what the entire city could do. So they managed to convince this emperor, who was so fearful of it, that he attacked them without provocation, without warning, and slaughtered everyone in the city. All of them died after saving the man's life, except for six. Those six were divided. Three of those six felt strongly that they should put down their arms, that the entire problem had been violence from the start, and that they wanted to move on with their life. And they actually ended up joining the Peking Opera, which is a very famous original source of artistic um, theatrical performance in China. And that is largely one of the reasons why we then later and now currently see choreographed depictions of combat in stage and film and television it was birthed with these fighters joining the Peking Opera who were capable of, of occupying theatrical roles of the fighter, the mythical fighter, and being yeah. able to do flips and stuff on stage. Yeah, yeah. performing really, yeah, the, really acrobatically. Acrobatically, that's right. The other three members of the six survivors were furious. They were disgusted with their three brethren for joining the opera. They were on a vengeance They side. felt it was dishonorable. And they went on a tear for vengeance, but there were only three of them, which is the, the triad. And the three triad made an oath then and there that no matter how long it took, that they would use any means necessary. They would sell women, sell drugs, do anything. Crime didn't matter. Whatever it took to take down the emperor of China, which resulted 400 years later in the Boxers Rebellion in 1901, where they did depose the emperor of China. Wow. So the triad still exists as an after effect because once the emperor was deposed, the British stepped in. And after the British stepped in, the Communist Party took hold. Mm -hmm. And they still believe the Communist Party to be basically the emperor. And they're still working to dethrone the Communist Party. And so the triad exists as a criminal organization, hell-bent on that. And that was birthed from these original Buddhist monks who took the wrong path. Wow. And in Kung Fu, in China, as we saw it, my coach often talked about this, there's believed to be two essential paths. And one essential path is the path of the open hand, which is what is symbolic of soft forms of Kung Fu like grappling, which ironically, even though it's called open hand, is considered to be the deadlier of the two paths because it's much more injurious to, to break bones, dislocate joints, strangle people to death. Mm -hmm. But it's perceived peaceful because those three soft form members chose the Peking Opera. So the open hand is sort of like 
the good guys, the peaceful guys, the pacifists. Mm -hmm. And this concept was ripped off very famously later by guys like, um, what's his name, George Lucas for Star Wars and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you have the, the closed, yeah. the darkly, the Sith is the closed yeah. fist. Yeah. The closed fist, when you see the symbol of the hardened fist, is, is referring to the tribe. It's referring to the ideology that we learn the arts that we may punish those who are criminal and punish injustice by any means necessary. And in so doing, like the triad, you become the hatred that you seek to, to, to vent upon your enemy. And so the closed fist is viewed as like a striking or a hard form. And in the West, we perceive it as like, oh, the fist just means striking. The hand just means wrestling. But it's actually synonymous with this, with this very real history of the triad being formed. And that was, you know, used by Lucas for the Sith and the Jedi. And it's been used in a lot of video games and counterculture, subculture. They don't know that, but that's originally where it was from. Mm -hmm. And so in the martial arts world, there's a little bit of connection, I guess, just to, I mean, uh, Taoism in general. Like, exactly. Yeah, which was a yeah, very, yeah. very formal concept of Japanese religion and culture for a long time, along with Confucianism, forms of Buddhism, etc. And to this day, in the martial arts, and I've seen this happen, people who don't even know the history, I've seen people say like, oh, you know, he's really close-fisted, or he's really open-handed. And I'm like, do you know the history? And they're like, no, no, I just, you know, think that's like an apt way of describing them. And I'm like, it's crazy, because the ethos just penetrates the psychology, penetrates the culture, and mm -hmm. continues through it. You pick it up, you don't even realize you picked it up. But that is really where it comes from. It's a major component of that history there, mm -hmm. right? And we see it play out again and again, where a fighter takes a path of vengeance, which is close fist, and where a fighter takes a path of pacifism, which is open hand. Mm -hmm. Pacifists are usually depicted as the good guys, and close fists are usually depicted as the bad guys. But there's really no good and bad, it's just preferred methodology. Yeah, yeah, it's, you can't have the good without the bad, right? You can't. Yes, it's, uh, yeah, for it's, sure. How do you know what's good if you don't contrast it to the bad, and vice versa? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and the culture that takes on the martial art always then has its own expression of it and then its own competitive form of it. And that competitive form ultimately becomes the defeat in that art. <laughs> when Chuck Norris was competing in karate, he was real fighting. He was real fighting. He was, what, 76 or something, two-time Olympic champion. Yeah. I still know that about he, he was, yeah, he was a real fighter. Yeah, he was. And that was, karate was a real deal. But then by the 80s, Chuck, Chuck Norris has become an actor and Elvis was practicing karate. Yeah. And those famous videos on YouTube where Elvis is like high on acid. Doing all this like theory and form and stuff. Yeah. Right. And that's where karate. Looking puffy. <laughs> and karate now because competitively karate had taken on this rule set, which was really interesting. The concept was very hyper masculine in space, which was you can kill a man in one punch. Now, th that's technically true. It's possible. I mean, we're just saying you can't kill a man with one bullet shot. Yeah, so, but like, <laughs> it's very unlikely you're gonna. Yeah. It's a typically a wicked accident, freak act of God yeah. that can kill someone with one punch. But Karate Kid maintained this whole killing with one punch, and a lot of it had to do with I can't remember the name of the guy off the top of my head, but there's this very famous original Karate Kid who was so out of his mind that he actually, in a demonstration, would cut the the horn of a bull off its head with his hand, chopping it. I can't remember. What? Yeah, you can look him up. He's, he's, look up like Karate Kid cutting off bulls horn. I'm sure it'll come up. Oh my God. He was friends with uh, Murahayu Ishiba who founded Aikido. He was friends with Igor Okano who founded Judo. There's all these guys who was kind of like the, the dozen black belts of that time period, different arts. 
And he was so nuts. So yeah, he literally could cut a bull's horn off of his hand. It was like documented. And so there was this impressive concept of like, oh, karate cock can kill a man with one shot. So when it came to the sport, it got to this point where you see now where essentially the ref goes like engage. And in a lot of karate tournaments, you need only to strike the opponent once to score a point. Mm-hmm. And then they reset. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. and that's this based on this perception of one strike will kill you. But yeah, yeah. You, you you look you go to learn karate and you learn this point system of striking from competitive points, and you think you can fight, and you get in a real fight, and you go hi yeah, I hit the guy once, and then he comes back at you with twenty punches, and you're like, wait, we have to reset. That's <laughs> yeah. not you know how <laughs> that's not how that's gonna go down, folks. Really, like, that's not a thing. Yeah. So, so I, what I would you? Say? Died, right? mm-hmm. Sorry to cut you off there. I just was gonna ask. Maybe, um, what would you say to someone who wants to learn martial arts for self-defense? Um, is it, is, is jiu-jitsu still your best bet? And then are you looking for specifically a class that's taught for, for self-defense as opposed to a competition so, style? So I would, I would say like three things. Firstly, think critically about what is happening in fights in real life. And because of the internet, both sadly and luckily, you can look up tons of videos. Fire up World Star. (laughs) World Star has got all kinds of... And think critically about the training method toward a real fight. Now, I'll give you a small example of this. In boxing, Thai boxing, a lot of forms of boxing, we have hand pads. So hand pads, there is just a pad that you fit on your hand. And then when the person is striking, you're, you're, you're hitting the pad, you're catching the fist with the pad, okay? Those hand pads are really useful for a lot of things. They use combinations and understanding, the, you know, how do you hit this and what's the fine points of the punch and that sort of stuff, speed, rhythm. But here's the thing. The targets of my body that you're going to punch are my chin, my nose, my jaw cluster, maybe my uh, sternum, xiphoid process, but just there's targets. When you watch people hitting hand pads on video, especially Instagram and stuff, you're going to see a lot of the hand pads being held out here, like this. If I'm teaching someone to punch my hand pad held away from my head this distance, what am I teaching them to do? Miss your head. Miss my head. I'm teaching them to miss my head. Neurologically, we now know neuroplasticity is a real thing. So I'm reinforcing the habit to miss a punch. I should be holding the hand pad here. Mm. And if I know how to strike, and I do... When I'm boxing and someone tries to punch me in the chin, I parry it with my wrist just like this. I tap it down. And the faster that shot is, the easier it is to parry that shot. So when I'm wearing hand pads, I'm practicing parrying mm-hmm. while they're practicing striking. Mm-hmm. So I'll put the hand pad on my chin and go jab here, bang. And I'll mm-hmm. throw the hook, hook here. I'll put it right at my shoulder, bang. Mm-hmm. I'll throw the punch. I'm going to go liver, mm-hmm. hit my liver. Mm-hmm. But when you see a lot of this pad work stuff where they're holding their hands way out wide or they'll just randomly kind of like put the pad somewhere on their body but it's not really a target. So that's the kind of thing I mean when I say critically thinking. Whatever art you're learning, really think about, am I hitting this person properly? And, and what's my target? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. Right? And when you get into, say, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, mm-hmm. um, you really should be thinking, okay, in a, in a situation where I am in conflict with an individual and I'm wrestling them, What's the most important thing I need to do to stay alive and not go to jail? Yeah. And the answer to that is stay on top of them. Yeah. And if you're not on top of them, find out how to get on top of them. Yeah. Right? Control their hands. Be aware of their hands at all times because they'll reach in their pocket and they'll pull out a mm-hmm. little switch army knife. Mm-hmm. They'll reach for a rock. 
I've been hit with bricks on more than a couple of occasions. You need to know where their hands are. Mm-hmm. So, and this is something that sadly I've seen die off in BJJ. I'll go to BJJ with regular frequency and at open mats, I'll say, like, hey man, do you want to roll with slaps? And I'm not going to hit you hard. I'm literally just going to go, boop, just going to touch you. But it's enough that when we roll, if I'm touching you in the chin and I'm touching you in the head and I'm touching you in the ribs or the lower liver or kidneys, suddenly you're like, oh my God, all my Dileva is useless. Like this guy's really, I'm underneath the person who is technically punching me even though it's a touch. And it's a reality check. Like I need to control his hands, not his legs. Mm-hmm. Who cares where his fucking ankles are? Where are his hands? Yeah, exactly. And that's something like think of it in a critical, critical mm-hmm. thinking sense of like what mm-hmm. is useful. Mm-hmm. Secondly to that, uh, I would say over overwhelmingly that the arts that are most important for self-defense are non-competitive, evasive style boxing mm-hmm. and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Sambo or Greco-Roman wrestling, all three, because mm-hmm. those arts, boxing and Sambo wrestling, BJJ, constantly stress live practice against a resisting opponent mm-hmm. so you get to understand and learn physically how to manipulate an opponent who's trying to really hurt you and it's not about the submissions it's about controlling the body getting it off of you staying on top of it mm-hmm. so you're not being punched underneath mm-hmm. a person mm-hmm. that is a major component so Wrestling arts are great because you learn how to manipulate a human body. The absolute yeah. value is manipulating the human body, not the joint mm-hmm. arms, not the strangles, manipulating the human yeah. body. Yeah. And then lastly, make sure that the club you go to is of a certain moral ethical quality. Yeah. And that means very important. no hyper masculinity. If you're going in there and they're like, we're going to spar and it's a brawl and people are bleeding, don't go there. Yeah, don't go back. If you're going to go in there and you're noticing that many of the people in the wrestling club you're at or jiu-jitsu club you're at are chronically, constantly injured, don't go there. You know, if yeah. you're, you're going to go to a club and you notice that there's not a lot of small people that's probably a sign that most of the wrestling is very muscly and strength yeah. related. So that's, and then the coach, like, I'm not going to name names because I don't want to cause yeah. a whole controversy, but yeah, I've, in the last several weeks, man, I've been floating around in different clubs and stuff and I'm still mm-hmm. a member of body four. I'm still at a headquarters. And, uh, so I've just come now that I got my professor shirt, my black belt, I'm sort of touring friends clubs. Mm-hmm. And, and I was shocked. I was shocked. The amount of guys I know who are black belts, who I really thought decent people who are dating not one but multiple students at a time who are romantically pursuing white belts and shit who are mm. you know selling yeah. selling steroids on the download of their students mm. or you know so you really need to go somewhere where the person running the club is of a certain caliber and I mean like mm. preferably parent a parent yeah. Who's, who's visibly committed to their children and their family is a mm-hmm. great place to start. That doesn't mean they're perfect. Yeah. They can still be shitty people, I know, but that's yeah. a good way if we start, you know. It's the first, uh, first thing to look at. It doesn't mean it's the last if, thing. If they're dating someone and it's, and it's likely they didn't meet that person at the class they're teaching, that's a good indicator. They're probably <laughs> doing all right. You don't find any, like, baggies or weird containers for chemicals <laughs> in the chain room. <laughs> 
I was in a gym literally just on Friday and I was getting changed and there was a Coke bag on the floor and I was like, well, I'm not coming here anymore. You Jesus know, so, Christ. Okay. Yeah, because there's a lot of mi- mixed up people, but you mm-hmm. got to find a club that has a good atmosphere, a good group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hopefully a group of people that are friendly, like we met, you know, rolling when I was instructing. Mm-hmm. And the atmosphere is such that you can have a person over and be a friend and trust that they can come to your house and not kind of steal shit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I got a good sense from you. Yeah, that's, that's an important thing. Um, I'm a father. I felt confident in inviting you to my house. Yeah, exactly. So those are the three things I would say, you know, really. Because, mm-hmm. and even on the self-defense level, if someone's a parent and they have a child of their own, when they're teaching you how to defend yourself, they're less likely to, to take this situation of like, He's broken in your house and he's going to rape your kids and eat your dog and steal all your... Like that. Yeah. The self-defense videos are hilarious to me because <laughs> it's always like, he came in to kill your family. Like, yeah, no, yeah. he probably was lost and wandered into your house because he thought it was his house. Like, yeah. There's like, or something. Yeah, I'm going to just throw, just for, for giggles, I'm going to throw a few scenarios at you that I've actually experienced in my career. Yeah, sure. Um... 92-year-old woman off her meds wielding a butter knife. <laughs> God. Like, someone's grandma, y'all. Like, oh, God. Are you going to just, like, gouge her eyes out and go for it? No, you're not. You're just not. No. <laughs> uh, 67-year-old man with dementia who actually was... Uh, what's the indication where they bruise really easily? Uh, yeah. I can't um, remember it. I, I know this one. I yeah. swear to God. Anyway, he bruised yeah, yeah. super easy. And he, in his dementia and his craziness, this old French guy pulled an eight-year-old Somalian kid out of a tree, and the whole courtyard of the Somalian residents came out, and they're like, what the, like, let go of that kid. Yeah. I came out as the guard responding and was like, I'm going to arrest you now for your own protection so this mob doesn't murder you. Yeah. And he tried to fight me. Yeah. So I had to wrestle a dude, try not to bruise him, try not to oh hurt him, God. you know, he's 67. Yeah. Uh, I once had a person steal um, laxatives. Because they were so effort up from meth. From, from shoppers. Yeah, guess, from yeah. shoppers. <laughs> and by the time we had chased this person across the street for stealing laxatives, they had a heart attack oh, and yeah. almost died just running across the road because they were so nasty. Don't make laugh, but yeah. Yeah. Or you're at your family reunion. My family's honky, y'all. And <laughs> someone gets real drunk and tries to pick a fight with your aunt. Are you going to break their arm or gouge out their eye? No, like yeah. self-defense scenarios are never what you think they are and they play it on these stupid videos and TV and stuff. There's all yeah. kinds of whacked out situations. Anything can happen. Oh man, dude, I, I once, I was at a club downtown. I got asked to do a consultation for the security operation of this club to find out how they could improve it. The answer of how they can improve it was in every way possible. That's <laughs> yeah. the worst, worst I've ever seen. <laughs> so I'm down in the fashion district and I'm just there as a consultant and this fight breaks up between two women. And I'm literally assessing the security team and I'm watching and the security team go, hang on, we can't approach because we're men. Only women can deal with women. So they're standing there watching these two women who've got fistfuls of each other's hair, smashing each other off of a marble sink. Like they're going to die. Like for real. Like they're going to lose an eye or something. So I just go, I can't, literally there's a Samaritan's law. I can't just stand here and watch this happen. So I walk up, these women are both like 90 pounds Yeah. and they're drunk. Yeah. Right. So I separate the two of them and the guards see me do it. They come over to me knowing I'm consulting and they're like, what are you doing? That's assault. I'm like, no, it's not. Yeah. (laughs) It's me letting these two murder one another. We live in such a weird time. Oh, dude. You know, it's like any, any... Physical contact with somebody could be perceived Demons, as right? like, yeah, yeah. So it's the worst thing that you could possibly do. Yeah, I, I separate them. I go, you take this one. Yeah. I'll take this one. This is a, the club that was the top of four flights of stairs. 
So I take my holding brother's shoulders, you know, steering her. Yeah. And I go down one flight of stairs and then I hear, hey! And I look up and the head of the security team comes running down after me with a female in tow who's a security guard. And he goes, what are you doing, you sexual assault? And I'm like, I'm holding a woman by the shoulders who's trying to kill me. What are you yeah. talking about? Here, you take her. Then I don't care. You know, yeah, sure. Right? And as he turns to take her, he goes, I'm not touching her and let's go completely. And she turns around and she had like a, like a seven inch stiletto heel and she lunged at me with it, went right through my pants and took a chunk out of my thigh. And I literally almost lost my testicle. The scar is right beside my oh testicle. My I could have died. I could have died from an eye with stiletto heels. Or worse. Yeah. Now, the girl cuts me. Too. Literally, the girl cuts me and I'm like, I don't, I'm literally, I'm not sure if my nuts are still there. Yeah. How am I going to react to that? I'm going to, what, drop kick a 90 pound girl? Like that's yeah. not, yeah. so self-defense is very much about handling a person who's out of their mind. And a lot of the time that person's not healthy, not large, they're mm. elderly, they're unfit, mm. mm. or they have a major mental health problem. Mm. I once arrested a guy, and then it's like, yeah, it's your own, it's on your own mental situation. Yeah, so like yeah. Not overreact. I once arrested a guy who stole three bricks of cheddar cheese from a shopper's drug market because he was homeless and desperate and hungry. And when I pursued him out into the street, we got to the parking lot, and it was in the middle of February, but it was the weather was not quite frozen, so the water was freezing and slushy, but not yeah. totally iced over. And he turned on me and pulled a knife. So I wrestle the knife out of his hand and in the process end up rolling around in this bloody puddle. Well, the cheese is flying around everywhere. And I kid you not, folks, at least 20 people are just standing there watching this guy try to stab me with phones out recording, accusing me of excessive force. Right? What? And I literally managed to get this guy in handcuffs from screaming the whole time. Someone called the cops. Like, this guy's trying to kill me. I get him in handcuffs. I get him inside. And the cops responded immediately, mostly because he tried to stab me, I hope. But probably also because he had actually stabbed two Toronto police officers three days before and he was out for like a severe warrant, right? Mm -hmm. So they showed up. And they yeah, yeah. And the guy was so emaciated stuff that the cop told me afterwards, if I had have actually even broken his arm, even with the pocket knife, because the pocket knife he was carrying was like a flip out and was like a two inch long blade. If I had broken his arm, it would have been excessive force. That blade couldn't be reasonably used to kill me unless he cut me in the throat. It's mm -hmm. this whole weird thing. And another example, uh, I'm sorry I have so many of these. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll give me one more example, um, and then I want to ask you, like, I, I, impacts you yeah, mentally. <laughs> I once had a, I was, I was working at a site that had a daycare on site in the bottom of a building in a community that was um, largely impoverished and needy, and many of them were um, actually refugees from the Civil War and a foreign nation, right? So I was there acting as sort of like a liaison, and we were constantly in contact with the RCMP. And this daycare had a pull-in area that was near a fire exit, and there was a pickup drop-off that you had to pull out of, and there was only space for two cars. Well, a lot of the parents would come in, and they would park in the fire road, which is a $450 fine. So we go out to this one car is parked in the fire road, and we go, excuse me, you got to move your vehicle. The guy gets out of the car and punches the landlord in the face. So we arrest the guy, bring him inside. I don't have my handcuffs, and I come in off-duty uh, to pick up my check when all this happens. So I was just assisting and then his girlfriend comes in looking for him, and I step out of the office. The girlfriend was six foot four, two hundred eighty pound Jamaican woman. Mm. Jamaicans, if you're out there, you are a strong bunch of people. Yeah, they are. You're a strong <laughs> bunch of people. Okay, so this woman on camera, clearly lit in a hallway from the angle of three different cameras, 
punches me square in the face. This is a good woman, y'all. Yeah, two hundred eighty pounds. Yeah. Like, she might have turned her hip for sure. Yeah, gun. <laughs> I felt the punch. Okay, and I was like, "Don't do that." She hits me a second time, and I went, "If you do that again, I'm going to arrest you." She hits me a third time, so I push her into a wall. Mm-hmm. I use a hip wheel throw to bring her to the ground with extreme control. This girl was not injured by this throw at all. Mm-hmm. Then I use a scarf hold, which is basically like a headlock for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And she bites me. I didn't have my bulletproof vest on, so she'd been into my skin and left a big scar that was took like two years to go away. Cops Jesus. documented it because biting somebody, for those of you who don't know, is automatically aggravated assault because you could have HIV, you could have tuberculosis, you could have bloodborne patterns. Rabies. Rabies, right? <laughs> yeah. So this girl bites me. I had to peel her mouth off me while calling for my partner to assist and bring his extra pair of handcuffs. Put her in handcuffs without harming her, despite being punched three times and bitten. Photograph documented by the Toronto police that responded. It goes to court. They watch the camera footage, this woman punching me, and say that I used excessive force, bringing her to the ground with a hip throw. And release her without charges. What? Yeah. This is the reality you encounter. No one in self-defense videos you see on the internet talk about the reality of your court systems yeah. and how they work. And and listen, this is an extra stone for everyone. If you're a 90 to 120 pound female watching this, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. If you attack, if you're attacked by someone my size and you break my arms, you'll probably not get a severe penalty for that. Maybe you'll get community. The world is unfair, I guess. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's fair. If she's 100 pounds, she yeah. has to do more than, if I'm 195 pounds, six foot two man, yeah, and yeah. I'm dealing with a 90 pound woman, any reasonable person, you did not have to punch that yeah, man, yeah. right? Like, it's, it's fair within reason. Where it gets yeah. really crappy is with the sex assault issue because you have to prove you were raped, mm-hmm. which means you got raped. Which means you didn't defend yourself. It's just a terrible system. That yeah, way, right? but yeah, I'm not, it's not fair because I mean you're treated differently, but you're also just physically different, so it kind of evens out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you have like it's extreme control, so your focus should be with boxing, not how hard you punch or how you knock someone out, but how you can evade and move and counteract and escape. That's your most important stress in boxing, which in prize fighting boxing is not at all the focus. The focus is hurt the opponent, put on a show, mm-hmm. make them bleed, knock them out. The mm-hmm. act, That's the antithesis of mm-hmm. self-defense mm-hmm. for striking. And then wrestling of any form, BJJ, grappling, whatever, is good because you learn how to get a person off you and hold them mm-hmm. and get to help. That's yeah. where you really want to focus. Those are the arts you want to really like try to get into. Yeah. And to answer your question about um, how it affected my mental state, it drove me insane. I ended up with complex, complicated PTSD, man. Yeah. yeah. That was yeah. not easy. It sucked. Yeah. yeah, and then so I like. Would you say that's from the that's from the actual fighting, maybe not from the practicing of the martial arts? Well, that that's where you get into. Um, we've had massive breakthroughs in mental health understanding in the last fifteen years, really, and it is a deep and profound tragedy that Ontario's healthcare. And our governments of Ontario, whether it is conservative, liberal, or anything in between, have utterly and completely, in every absolute possible definition, failed the members of our community, period, including me. And here's my experience of PTSD, okay? Sure. I grew up in the most horrifically brutalized and violent environment that you can possibly imagine. 
I don't want to upset anyone, so I'm going to give everyone listening and watching this a trigger warning. If you have a serious background of trauma related to childhood violence or any violence, please skip this part of the podcast. Pause it now. Three, two, one. If you're still watching, you're going to hear a triggering series of descriptions. A second warning is being given. My mother tried to murder my sister when I was seven in front of me. And I had to fight her off. She was on heavy medications for mental health challenges and severely alcoholic and a large woman who was very strong. That was not the first time I almost died. Holy cow. Okay. I, it took me 20 years to unlock that memory. That's a repressed memory. And that is the seat of PTSD. Now to clarify, PTSD and all forms of mental health diagnoses, all forms are brain damage. And this is where everyone gets things kind of mixed up. When we say this person's suffering from borderline personality disorder, this person's suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, this person's suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, what you are saying in a nutshell in every one of those instances is this person has brain damage. Mm -hmm. In the case of borderline personality disorder, the amygdala is depressive. Mm -hmm. Now your hippocampus is kind of like a searchlight. Mm-hmm. So if you're in a parking lot and a car is coming at you and you need to move out of the way of the car before you get hit by the car, mm-hmm. it is your hippocampus that goes, hey, there's a noise. What is it? Mm-hmm. Then your amygdala, which is linked to your hippocampus, goes, oh, that's a car and it's coming. Muscles move. Mm-hmm. Okay, And that hippocampus amygdala relay connects to your frontal lobes that control emotional output. Mm-hmm. So if it's a car and that's a scary thing, the amygdala mm-hmm. goes, that's a fear, car, fear, frontal fear. lobes, fear, 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 move faster. And this is a very important relay in your brain that is obviously useful for a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, if your amygdala is depressive, as it is with borderline personality disorder, then the hippocampus is going to go, hey, what's that noise? Crickets. Until the car has almost hit you. Mm-hmm. And then the amygdala goes, oh, shit, a car. Yeah. And then suddenly that huge adrenaline dump and the fear response. And oh, my God. And the person with the borderline persona goes, <laughs> yeah. and there's a panic attack. That's because there is a physical problem with their brain. Mm-hmm. It's brain damage. Post-traumatic stress disorder is the same thing. It's brain damage. And the brain damage is this. The relay to communicate between the hippocampus and the amygdala is broken. It's not working. So sometimes the message gets through. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, the left and right hemispheres of your brain, which are meant to communicate, that's broken. So your left and right hemispheres aren't communicating. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, your frontal lobes are not responding accurately. Mm-hmm. And that means your emotional regulation is all fucked up. Mm-hmm. So you can see a car coming and not feel anything. Or you can see a car coming and think you're going to crush the car in your hands because you're unstoppable. Like, it, it, everything's messed up. So one of the things that happens, with, for example, with post-traumatic stress disorder is a condition known as alexithmia. Alexithmia is really interesting when you're not affected by it, but it's horrible if you are, and I speak from experience. Basically what the issue is, is when my mom was attempting to murder my sister and then tried to murder me, I was left with a very specific question and a very specific answer. Do you want to live? Mm. Yes. Well, if you're so frightened that you freeze, Mm -hmm. you're going to die. Yeah, in that situation. If you're frightened and you run, your sister's going to die. Mm-hmm. So the only answer to the equation to both save your sister and yourself is don't be afraid. Yeah. Your brain is a phenomenal thing. You know what it can do? It can turn off your fear. Yeah. But to turn off your fear, it has to turn off the emotional centers of your body and your brain. Mm-hmm. And once it turns them off, you can't turn them back on. 
There's a specific way to turn it back on, which Vanderkoek covers in a very, very important book. If anyone out there has PTSD, you have to read The Body Keeps the Score by Dr. Bessel Vanderkoek. Preface that with understanding neuroplasticity. The brain heals itself, the healing brain. There are a number of books on neuroplasticity. Then read Bessel Vanderkoek's The Body Keeps the Score. He shows in documented brain scans, and he was the first doctor to do fMRI and MRI brain scans on people in the middle of traumatic flashbacks with PTSD to show exactly what was happening in the brain at the time, showing the frontal lobe shutting down, showing the amygdala hippocampus interruption, understanding the brain damage. Wow. So once that, that emotional regulation gets turned off and you have what's called alexithmia, what that means is you're not feeling shit. Mm-hmm. So literally a question that you can use to diagnose alexithmia, a lot of doctors do, is they'll say to a person, I want you to imagine that an 18-wheeler is bearing down on you. You literally turn around and a truck is about to hit you. It's right there. Mm-hmm. How do you feel? Mm-hmm. Scared. Scared. Yeah. That means your emotional response is working. Do you know what you would say? And every patient typically mm-hmm. says in one manner or another, if that's not working, they say, I'd get out of the way. Oh. They don't register the emotion of that of that situation. Mm-hmm. They instead emotion register the action required. Mm-hmm. That's a strong indicator of alexithmia or even autism. Yeah. Okay? There are other factors, but alexithmia is a big one. So if that emotional center is shut down for survival purposes and you can't fire it back up, imagine what happens with every interpersonal relationship in your life, all your romances, yeah. familial contacts, mm-hmm. co-workers. How do you navigate situations where you are experiencing no empathy, no sympathy because you don't feel the emotional systems, right? Yeah, yeah, I imagine that's an impossible task. Yeah, like that's and that's from the brain damage. And more to that event, I was 37 years old when I learned for the first time that you feel emotions in your body. Mm. This is a foreign concept. And if you're listening to this and you go, what do you mean you feel emotions in your body? Go see a trained professional in therapy for PTSD, which you will not be able to find. I'll get to that in a second, unless yeah. you go to the States, maybe, or <laughs> go private. But basically what I'm saying is, um, if you feel fear, it's not just fear as a mental concept. You feel fear as a tingling yeah, your chest in your chest. Yeah. yeah, if you feel guilt, it's a pressure in your abdomen for some people it's nausea for certain people but there is actually a physical feeling associated with every emotion you feel mm-hmm. and that's because there are actually three thinking centers of your body your brain your vagus nerve and your stomach are thinking centers that are all responding to one another in decision making right. and when you get alexithmia the emotional cortex is shut down so the vagus nerve is still registering emotions and giving you the physical sensations but you're not tying them to emotional states. Mm-hmm. So literally, when I first got diagnosed, I went to the doctor in, well, I went to the hospital to emerge thinking I was having a heart attack because I had pain in my chest. It's actually because in my brain damage, my frontal lobes are no longer registering the feeling. What was happening was I had just recently been horrifically betrayed by a large group of people and I was suffering from devastating sadness and grief, but mm-hmm. I no longer felt sadness or grief So instead, I felt pain in my chest as an injury, and I couldn't tell how I hurt myself and assumed it was a heart attack. That's what happens. So you have to learn how to reconnect your brain to the emotional thinking center. 
Some of that is possible through neuroplasticity and certain practices, as described by Dr. Bessel van der Koek in The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. And some of that is so challenging, some of the damage is so severe and hard to deal with, like repressed memories, mm-hmm. that you need help. And in my case, I ended up getting, uh, after a lot of personal progress and work, I was at a point where I was nearly what we would consider cured, which is when your PTSD scores are below a certain threshold, but I wasn't quite totally there. So I ended up going and getting something called neural feedback therapy. And they put an electrode on one side of your brain, and they put an electrode on the other side of your brain, or I should say your skull, yeah. and they fire a low-frequency electric current through a specific region of your brain that's been damaged mm-hmm. in order to dial it up or dial it down and tinker with it to try to get it to activate it at mm-hmm. nominal levels. And okay. then you can actually reverse some of the traumatic damage that occurs. Okay. So you can get PTSD from getting punched, you can get PTSD from emotionally traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing. Some stuff that happens in life is so genuinely horrific that your brain just goes, snap. Yeah. Your brain just goes, that didn't happen. Yeah. That didn't happen. I do not want to live in a world where that happened. Mm-hmm. That didn't occur. I'm not dealing with it. Forget it. It's done. And then it locks it away in a little box. You never want to fucking think about it again. Mm-hmm. And that is like if your computer develops a bug and you have to... Um, you know, re reinstall Windows. <laughs> yeah. Literally, it's it's yeah. it, it, human brain is actually the basis that we base all computational theory on. The human brain is a computer, literally a computer. Mm-hmm. And our computers that we're using, like the one we're recording on today, are nowhere near as powerful as the human brain. We're trying to get them to a point where they are as powerful as the human brain, mm-hmm. because computers use binary code where they can only they can only process one computation at a time in a specific order in a straight row. Mm-hmm. The human brain can process like eight at a time simultaneously and mm-hmm. not specifically in an order. Mm-hmm. It's rapidly advanced. So it's, a lot can go wrong when there's something wrong in that system. That yeah. brain damage is really severe. So I saw all this violence and I seen it in childhood and then I fought in real life and I fought all these fights. And it's the thing. Everyone's like, oh, you're a hero. You saved this person's life. I've you know, it's not to be arrogant, I'm not bragging. I saved so many people's lives that I've forgotten how many people's lives I've saved. Mm-hmm. And everyone praises you for that, kind of. Mm-hmm. But nobody stops to go, one day, all the stuff you've done is going to come back. Mm-hmm. And it's going to break your brain. Mm-hmm. Literally break your brain. So then you end up, like, I spent eight years just completely nuts. The two years of my life, I have no recollection of most of it. If I wasn't mm-hmm. for my wife, I probably would be gone somewhere yeah and then the six years that followed i had recollection of but it was just nightmare flashback panic attack nightmare oh. flashback panic attack nightmare flashback panic attack like endlessly mm-hmm. on i would have two three panic attacks a day so i went into humber river regional hospital yeah yes and uh i went into emerge and i went i think i'm having a heart attack and they did the ecg and they were not having a heart attack and i had the extreme fortune that the doctor on, on the emerge that day was not normal for that position. He was there covering for somebody. And he had actually just come back from the war in Afghanistan where he had done triage. So I'll never forget this. He walked into the room looking at my chart. And he looked at the page and he looked at me. And he looked me up and down. And he went, you fight, don't you? Mm-hmm. And I went, yeah. He went, how many times have you fought? And no one had ever asked me that. I, I never thought about it. It was yeah. like fighting was life for me, right? Yeah, so yeah. I was like, and I thought about it. And I'm like, well, I've got a couple hundred arrests with this police service, a couple hundred arrests with that police service, and probably arrests, you know, probably four or five fights. It's like, I don't know, like two, three thousand. He was like, 
yeah, you've got PTSD. Okay. For sure. And, it's, yeah. and he literally... I've seen it so many times. I've seen it so many times because he worked with soldiers, right? Yeah. So he went, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to get help. Mm-hmm. Promise me mm-hmm. that you will come back to the mental ward mm-hmm. tomorrow. I'm going to have an appointment for you. Oh, wow. You have to come back. We have to assess to see if you're a threat to the public. Mm-hmm. When when you say you fight, what do you do? I'm a bodyguard and this and that. Yeah. You, have you trained? I'm like, yeah, boxing, you know, Brazilian mm-hmm. Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, whatever. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to come be assessed. Mm-hmm. Please promise me you'll be assessed. I don't want to hear about you in the paper a week from now. Mm-hmm. You know, I went, okay. Wow. So I went back to the Humboldt nice regional, regional Mental Ward, right? It was a really great doctor for sure. And I saw the head, or at least this guy told me he was the head of the Humber River Regional Mental Ward. And he brought me to his office, sat me down and said, okay, there are no doctors employed within OHIP qualified to treat PTSD. Whoa. There are no doctors employed within OHIP qualified to treat PTSD. How long ago was this? This was nine years ago now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then he said to me, I can give you a prescription for, was like diazepam or something. Okay. And folks, yeah. So it's a downer. Downer. I've never drank alcohol in my life to this day. And I've never done drugs. And I only started you using. You that a bar. Hold yeah, on a I second. <laughs> I never drank alcohol in my life because alcohol is the reason my mom was the way she was. The reason my dad was the way he is. So I never touched a shit. And I cannot stress this enough, ladies and gentlemen, if it's in, at all in your constitution to do so, don't touch alcohol. That's another subject for the day. Anyway. Yeah, um, it is. So he's, it's true. Yeah. So he said, uh, I can give this prescription. And I went, I've never done anything. That, isn't that kind of a hard jump? Like He was mm-hmm. like, well, it's that or panic attacks. And I've been a fighter my whole life, and this is the one distinct edge I had. I've been fighting since I was a kid, literally, before I even learned martial arts. Mm-hmm. I'm used to being in pain and discomfort and shitty mm-hmm. places. You know, if you've trained in BJJ, you, you know what it's like. You're, you're like, fuck, I'm always so I hate it. You want to keep going, you let me get right? <laughs> so I went, okay, I'm going to think about it, but I don't think it's a good idea. He said, okay, I'm going to arrange for you to come back and see a colleague of mine that works here. He's a specialist in anxiety. He's not qualified for PTSD, but I can have you treat him so, or have you see him. So I came back the following day and I saw him and he went, there's nothing I can really do. I'm not qualified to treat PTSD, but I can give you this book on anxiety. And I walked out of there with a prescription for diazepam and a book on anxiety. And I just went, a doctor who just told me that he had no idea how to treat me gave me a crazy powerful psychoactive substance yeah. and a book totally unrelated to what I have. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the experience of mental health treatment in Ontario. Yeah. That's what you're dealing with. 80 plus percent of people with PTSD kill themselves. The highest cause of death of men in Canada from 18 to 25 years of age, according to census, is suicide. More than cancer, more than heart disease, more than obesity and its related illnesses, more than traffic accidents, more than work accidents, suicide is the number one cause of death of our healthiest demographic of males. Yeah, 18 to 25. Okay. Call Cam H. I did. Just last year, I called Cam H. When I was looking into neuroplastic, uh, or sorry, neural, neural feedback therapy, I called Cam H library and said, do you have any materials on neuroplasticity and neural feedback therapy so I can read them to decide if I want to go through this therapy? I am quoting the lady on the phone who told me this. Cam H doesn't have materials on neuroplasticity. Cam H doesn't entertain neuroplasticity. Cam H understands the fixed brain theory. Fixed brain theory, folks, means 
The hippocampus is a part of my brain where language sits. Mm -hmm. If I damage my hippocampus in like a car accident and I lose the ability to speak, under the fixed brain theory, the doctor would say, that's it, you'll never talk again. We know, we know from the work of Dr. Taub who created stroke rehab therapy and other such doctors that that's not true, that neuroplasticity exists that you can repair that broken region and if you can't repair it, you can make new connections and use other parts of your brain to facilitate speech. KMH is operating on a method and model that's been outdated for now at least a decade, probably longer, and is a complete disservice to every single person in this community. You're paying for this with your tax money. This is our top uh, psychological hospital. This is our top psychological hospital in Ontario. It's just handing out prescriptions for pharmacological agents that are doing way more damage than good. Folks, if antidepressants work, depressant would be gone. Yeah. <laughs> but antidepressants, since they started being prescribed in the 60s, depression's gone up fourfold since the 60s. It. Yeah. Right? Now, I'm not knocking it. If you're under antidepressants and it's working for you, listen, you manage however you can. But I am saying that it's not going to cure you. It's just going to manage you. Yeah. And this is the thing. We know these things are brain damage. We know depression is a result of inflammation in the brain. We're on a good track. We have brain scans for these conditions that are showing where these damage seats. But how are you going to fix that if you're entertaining this fixed brain model? And how are you yeah. going to fix that when you've got no doctors qualified to treat conditions that affect every cop, every fireman, every bodyguard, every security guard, every abused child that you've ever seen? Like post-traumatic stress disorder is way more common than you think. Just most people don't realize they have it because it doesn't get bad enough that they go out of their mind the way I did, Mm -hmm. right? But it's a reality. So I had to literally learn and only, only because two things, no, three, I've been a fighter my whole life. That was a major edge for me. Two, I've never used a substance. So when I started losing my shit, I didn't go booze, 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 which is what any person who drinks would do to calm that. A crush to fall back for sure. And that is, listen, if you're suffering from that, man. All the sympathy to you. I was just fortunate enough that I never touched the stuff, so it never occurred to me to try it. That's the only thing that happened. And then because I was... So lucky. Yeah, so lucky. That was strict, strict luck. And then lastly, I'm Asperger-style autistic. I didn't know it at the time. I actually got diagnosed with Asperger's autism when I was 33 during my therapy for PTSD with a private therapist. Mm -hmm. She diagnosed me after seeing me for a year and a half. She finally put it together. But basically, for those of you who don't know what that is, Asperger's style autism means I have an exceptionally high IQ. My IQ when I was five was measured at like 165 points. I can read and understand phenomenal amounts of material. So in the eight years that has lapsed since I was diagnosed and before I cured myself, I just ingested just PhD level material on neuroplasticity, psychology, brain damage, constant mm-hmm. constant, what is consciousness, computation, mm-hmm. and then found like Van Koch's theory on trauma. He's the head of the Boston Trauma Center. He's the world's foremost leading expert on trauma. And nice. that, that material is how I, and I had to cure myself. Literally, I had to cure myself. And mm-hmm. if it wasn't for figuring out that neurofeedback therapy exists and there's only one clinic in Toronto that does it genuinely, and this is a warning if you're listening to this, Several clinics in Toronto offering neurofeedback therapy are fraudulent, blatantly fraudulent. Really? Yeah. There's only one clinic doing it legitimately. That therapy is one of several types of therapy recommended by Vanderkoek as a potential avenue. And he does actually recommend martial arts as the first step to reestablishing emotional brain-body connection. Yeah. So he has, for people who can't do like kickboxing or grappling, he trains um, massage therapists in trauma-informed methods of massage therapy. And what that looks like is if I'm massaging your foot 
and I'm trying to teach you how to recognize the difference between physical pressure and emotional feelings in your body, I might like rub your foot and go, how does that feel? Tell me what that feeling is. Describe it. Is it pressure? Is it pleasant? Is it not? And when they start describing, I say, okay, now if that was an emotion, what would that emotion be called? Mm-hmm. And you start to teach them that. And they get trained very specifically by him from the trauma center for that. Barring that, there is, mm-hmm. if you get into kickboxing, martial arts, any kind of contact thing, you start to be forced to learn to understand the difference between body pressure and something mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. But that's only step one. Yeah. You have to take that and then you have to start connecting that. And I'm going to mm-hmm. finish the podcast with something I'm doing about that later. But um, then from there, you move on to uh, trying to unseat repressed memories that were the source of the PTSD. And that, for me, folks, that took like four and a half, five years. And it, it was not necessarily a conscious effort. I knew it had to happen, but I didn't know how it would happen. I used internal family systems therapy to identify some of the repressed components. And then I guess I just got far enough along that one day in the spring during COVID, during the lockdown, um, I started smelling mold in my house. And my house doesn't have mold. And I was, it was driving me nuts. Like I was literally going nuts. I was like freaking out, crying at my wife. Like, I smell mold. I smell mold. And I went everywhere and I went down to our store side, which we don't even use. And a friend of ours had left a mattress and they were wrapped in plastic. Well, the plastic got a hole and it got moldy in the mattress. And I was smelling the mold in a mattress, in plastic, in the cold room, in the basement, separate from our apartment. That's how <laughs> okay. sensitive I was to mold. And when I discovered it through the house, that the smell of the mold triggered the flashback. And that's when I remembered my mother actually trying to murder my sister because that house was riddled with mold and was actually condemned after we moved out. We were so poor. We couldn't live in places that were the rent was reasonable. Yeah. So we lived in this mold-infested shithole at the time because it was so cheap. And it brought back the memory and that repression unlocked. And then I remembered the narrative. When you read Vanderkolk, he'll talk about... Restoring the narrative is being able to access the memory from start to finish in a way that cohesively makes sense so that you can process it and let it go and move on, which is why I can now talk about it without having a crazy flashback, right? Yeah. yeah. But after I learned that, I still wasn't fully healed. And that's when I looked up the neurofeedback therapy because I was still having problems with catastrophizing health anxiety. Yeah. I would get a sensation in my body and go, oh shit, it's cancer. I'm going to die. Yeah. But really, it was an emotion and I wasn't quite you know, identifying it. I feel like I do that now. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> common. It's common thing. Yeah. Catastrophizing health anxiety. When your anxiety is high, man, that's a reality. Like these things exist. Take care of yourself. Try to mitigate. Anyway, when I went to neurofeedback therapy, um, the first two clinics I went to were just blatantly fraudulent. I went in, and here's how you tell if they're fraudulent. If you're listening to this, this is how you tell. If you go to a neurofeedback therapy clinic, you're dealing with what should be a licensed practicing clinical mental health specialist who's going to do therapy for you. Neurofeedback therapy is just one method of therapy. There's you know internal family systems, there's staging, there's all kinds of different stuff that you can do. So because of that, this therapist that you're seeing should only be charging you what a therapist charges you, which is a normal rate of about 125 to 175 per hour, usually 115 hours in general, okay? That's how you know. If you go into the clinic and you go, I want neurofeedback therapy, how much is it? And their answer is 150 an hour, period. They're probably legitimate. I don't know for sure, but they're probably legitimate. Mm. The clinics I went to that were fraudulent, I went in and I went, I want neurofeedback therapy. And again, I read a lot by this point, right? Mm. And they were like, oh, okay, well, the intake to get your patient history is 250 bucks. Then they have to fit you for a helmet, which there's no, you don't even use a helmet for your feedback therapy, but they fit you for a helmet, which is custom to you. 
for another three hundred dollars. Oh god! Then they have to do a first. Yeah, they have to do a first session where they map your brain. They don't map your brain. When they map your brain for three hundred dollars, it's all fake. They're just conning you for cash. And the worst part of this is they're conning people who are desperate, broken, hurt, and suffering, like brutally suffering. I have broken my neck and learned how to walk again. I've broken my nose four times, broken my ankle, my foot in three places, my shoulder broken five times, and I've had surgical repair, tore my ACL and walked on it, destroyed with two meniscal tears for six years before they found it. Folks, I've been knocked out. I've been choked out. I've been in every goddamn horrifying scenario you've been. I've been through everything. And I'm telling you the worst imaginable possible thing to experience is PTSD. It's fucking horrible. Yeah. And they're conning people who have this condition. Yeah. It's brutal. So if you find a clinic that has it and it's legitimate, it should just be, this is the rate I charge for therapy. This yeah. is one type of therapy. Period. Yeah. They're just right? taking advantage of vulnerable people. Oh, it's, that's it's it's horrible. It's terrible. So I did manage to find a legitimate clinic. It was great. Uh, I did probably about six to nine weeks, give or take. I'm very bad with time because of my autism, but it was like six time nine weeks that I did it. And my anxiety spiked during it, which is a common thing with like medications and treatments because they're kind of tinkering with things to try to, you know, is this going to help? Is that going to help? So my anxiety was on the rise while I was doing it and I had a bit of a struggle. And then when the time they finished, I haven't had a nightmare or flashback an episode since. I haven't had a catastrophic anxiety since. I've actually been sick three times since I finished. And I didn't freak out. I just went, oh, I have a bladder infection. And went to the doctor. Like a normal, healthy guy. So, so I've, at this point, as near as I can tell, I'm fully recovered. So is it, is it talk therapy or is it specific drills? Or no, and you don't want to do talk therapy for PTSD specifically. Do they give you some chemical? What, is, what exactly is it? So they, they hook the electrode up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one, and there's different positions. So sometimes they'll put the electrodes like here and here to get to mm-hmm. like amygdala. Here and here, you get to hippocampus, here and here for frontal lobe. Like it depends on, they do like the brain hemisphere. But the big thing is basically once they tinker with the areas that are typically affected, like in PTSD, it would be frontal lobes, hippocampus, amygdala, and brain hemisphere bridge. Then they go, okay, we think we repaired some of the damage or most of the damage. Now what we're going to do, we're going to trigger the, we're going to stimulate the part of your brain where memories are seated. And if there's a repression in there, probably going to come out. Okay. And so they kind of like, put you in a chair mm-hmm. and they cover your eyes with a little uh, face mask that's comfortable and they put headphones or noise canceling on with a pleasant sound that you get to choose. Sure. And when you're doing the therapy normally, you can just like watch a TV show because it's just running. So you watch like Netflix. But when they do this thing, they sit in the chair, they put the headphones on, put the head, and then the therapist... It's supposed to induce something. Yeah, so the therapist ready, is sitting in the room with you. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm right here. When you're ready to process mm-hmm. some shit, you can mm-hmm. talk to me. So mm-hmm. they put me in it and I was... I was kind of hopeful and excited. Like, I really hope, as much as I'm not going to enjoy the repressed memory, yeah. I really fucking hope this happens, right? So, like, put me in there and, and, you know, totally sober, no drugs involved. And I remember sitting there and um, the image of the the tops of trees with sunshine through them, like when you're laying on the ground looking up through the trees and you see the sun through the leaves, that image started to appear. But it was really weird and foggy and the sound was off. And it's because I was I realized I was actually looking at the sunlight through the trees from underwater. And then I was like, wait a minute, I remember this. I was four and I fell in a pool and I drowned in unconsciousness. And as I slipped into unconsciousness drowning, that was the last thing I saw. 
And I woke up several minutes later from what I can gather. My father had gotten drunk because he was always drunk Mm -hmm. and left me unattended. And I wandered into a pool and drowned to unconsciousness and was resuscitated by paramedics and probably was clinically dead for a short period. So it was like the first time I died. Mm. And I mean the first time because it happened more than once. Yeah. And I came out of it and I was crying and stuff. And I was just like, I fucking forgot that I almost died that time. Yeah. And then this time and then that time. And the guy was like, that's horrible. Do you want to talk about it? And that's, so talk therapy is only something you should be engaging in. And most therapists now know this. Talk therapy is only something you be engaging in after you've unlocked narratives of repressed memory, after you've worked through significant trauma. If you're a patient, if you as the patient are still experiencing flashbacks and nightmares, when you go into talk therapy about the things that are causing the flashbacks, you actually just cause yourself to have a flashback. Mm-hmm. And this was proven when Vandercook did, did scans on the frontal lobes and MRI systems, right? So what he realized in that initial scanning period was he was like, oh, the patient is getting more out of the therapy by putting chairs away than they are by talking. Because when you put the chairs away, you're accessing a different part of your brain that's like medial tasks, which Mm -hmm. activates parasympathetic nervous system and calms you down. Mm -hmm. And when you start talking about the trauma, if it's not processed, Mm -hmm. it fires up all these broken systems because you're brain damaged that actually further break the damn system. So you're re-traumatizing the patient. So there's a therapy called like EMDR, I think, where they, they move, they, they teach you where to move your eyes because they actually figured out that when you have a flashback or traumatic experience, your eyes take on a pattern of movement and they can actually guide your eyes to move in a way that, that actually releases the flashback and stops it from occurring. So EMDR therapy is better than talk. Everything's better than talk therapy. Mm-hmm. But talk therapy is good once you've unlocked the memory and repaired that brain damage. Mm-hmm. Then you want talk therapy to run through the narrative of the memory finish everything off and come to right. completion. Right. But that shouldn't be engaged until a final, final step. Yeah, you've got to be ready. You yeah. Do the work yeah, ahead of time. It's big. So um, what I'm, what, because I've been through all this stuff and I'm, and I'm inspired and I want to help people and there's nothing available yeah. unless you have the money for private therapy. And even then it's very restrictive. And right. I, folks, I know a number of practicing mental health therapists right now as friends. They're great people, but I've still not met a single one who actually knows how to treat PTSD and confidently goes about that. Yeah. Like that's a very big reality. So it takes a long time probably to get proficient at it. Oh yeah. And this is experiential. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even even if, even if you, you learned theoretically how to treat it, if you haven't had it, it's a very hard thing experientially to, to comprehend. Like, and this is like, I'll finish with this. Every one of these types of brain damage that we refer to as a mental health condition, whether it's generalized anxiety, where your amygdala is probably hyperactive, your frontal lobes are overstimulated, whether it's autism, which is a neurological issue, whether it's BPD, NPD, histrionic personality disorder, any kind of cluster B personality disorder, whether it's schizophrenia, whatever, whatever brain damage is, is going on, okay, the, the, the issue at its core that's affecting it all is the perception of the individual, okay? So let's say someone with borderline personality disorder, okay? This is a good example of how perception can alter things. If I say to a woman who has borderline personality disorder, um, you have a nice bum, okay? I compliment you, you have a nice bum. That woman's liable to respond to me by saying, so my, so my legs are ugly? 
Okay? And that sounds, it's a funny thing when you, at first, but what's actually yeah. happening there is the perception of the person has been affected by brain damage. Mm-hmm. So they do not hear a compliment. No. They think your compliment is a masked criticism, mm. avoiding what they perceive to be their flaw, their fat legs. Mm. The person with schizophrenia has a type of brain damage where they can perceive people and places and things that are not real. Mm. When I had PTSD, I had auditory and visual hallucinations and flashbacks that would occur at random without control of my, my person. Yeah. One time I came out of a movie theater with my wife, and only because I trusted her profoundly to be helping me yeah. did I rely on her to correct my reality. Yeah. We came out of a movie theater and without getting too detailed, because family people might be listening to this, yeah. there was an incident in Asia where a lot of children died and I was not able to save them. And I came out of this theater and I saw the burning bloodied hand of a child reach for me through a car window. Oh, God. Not my car, a car in a parking lot. And I fully grabbed my wife and was like, did I just fucking see that? Uh-huh. And she looked at the car and she went, no, you didn't see that. That wasn't real. And that's my perception. My wow. reality yeah. is not the same as your reality. Yeah. And to further into that, I'm, I'm autistic. Yeah. Many of so what autism basically does is a neurological difference of the of the five senses of your body. Mm-hmm. My physical sense of touch, mm-hmm. s- sight, smell, taste, and sound are affected by the neurological differences. In my case, my sense of touch, my sense of smell, and my sense of taste are hypo sensitive, meaning they're turned down significantly. Yeah. And my vision and my hearing are hyper-sensitive, meaning mm. they're turned up quite a bit. So that means that when you when you touch me, I feel it, but not the same as you. So I have a much mm. higher threshold for pain. That's why you're a good fighter. Yeah, because I have great bodyguard. Supervision, <laughs> hearing, and lots of pain. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's why I survived. And all this shit I survived. And so when you see someone like, how the fuck are they doing it? This, I wonder if this, that's an adaptation or just oh, it is. starting. Oh, it is. Yeah. We could have a whole other podcast on yeah. my family history. I explain the adaptation. Okay. Uh, epigenetics is real, man. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely. so what that means, ladies and gents, is if you touch me to massage me, you can like put your elbow in and be like, and I'd be like, oh, that feels so good. Yeah, yeah. I've met people autistic. Must love Rolfing. Yeah, I've met people autistic who are hypersensitive with their sense of touch. If you try to massage them, it's literally like a finger, like this yeah, much it's pressure. Like my mother. Yeah, and they're, <laughs> anybody touches. And some of them might much. be like, "Ow!" <laughs> so understand, their lived experience is different than yours. If you put the hypersensitive and the hyposensitive in a gym and you teach them wrestling, who's going to stay? Yeah, hyposensitive right. guy. And what are they going to describe wrestling like? If you go, what was that like? They're going to go, that was the hypersensitive. That was the worst experience of my life. Yeah. It was so painful. I hated it. They were all yeah. around me. I couldn't breathe. Hypersensitive, like, that was fun. I'm going to do it again. Yeah. yeah. Kind of cool. I, yeah. you know, I feel like I did work out. So your perception is everything. And when someone has a mental health condition, which is a type of brain damage, it is altering their perception. Your perception as you're listening to this mm. is different than the perception of the people around you subtly in ways you don't realize. Yeah. Many of us never discuss. And when you have someone say, for example, alexithmia, and they're not feeling emotions, how, how would you know that? How would they know that? Mm. Because their feeling of emotion is a, is a cognitive concept, mm-hmm. not a physical feeling. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And until you go, hey, man, did you feel your fear in your chest? Mm-hmm. And they go, what? You're not going to know that they're not. So these are things we, we take for granted and assume is universal, but it isn't. Perception is everything. So when someone has a mental health condition, please try to bear in mind, their reality has been altered by a damage to their brain. Mm-hmm. You're getting frustrated with somebody. Like you wouldn't get frustrated with someone who's blind. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You don't get fr- you're, you're, you try not to get frustrated with babies because they're not fully developed. Yeah. You they're not emotional regulation. Yeah, you don't, you, yeah. don't, you can't blame them for it. Yeah. It's just, it's that's a great example. In the case of BPD, typically the area of the brain that, res- that is responsible for emotional regulation stops developing between 18 and 24 months. So if you're a 40 year old woman with BPD, your emotional regulation capabilities are the equivalent of an 18 to 24 year old month old baby. Yeah. So to put that in context, if I'm feeding my 18-month-old baby and I drop the spoon, yeah. the baby's going to go, ah, it's the end of the world and I'm yeah. dying and you, why did you, and you pick yeah. up the spoon and go like this and they go, oh, that's great. I'm happy. Yeah, exactly. Just like that. So yeah. you get a 40-year-old woman who has that regulation yeah. and you go, oh, here's a Coke. Oops. And you spill it. And she's like, what the hell are you hating me? Rah, rah, rah. And you open yeah. another Coke over here and they go, oh, okay, it's fine. Yeah. And you're like, this fucking, this thing's crazy. Yeah. No, she has brain damage. There's a depressive component. There's an mm-hmm. issue with the brain. Until we figure out how to fix that, she's stuck in that perceptive reality. There's nothing she can do about that. Mm-hmm. She can alter it reasonably with neuroplasticity. There are cases that are improved, which mm-hmm. is why you have a gradient of BPD, stage mm-hmm. one, stage two, stage three, stage four, pathological. Mm-hmm. You can bring it down from stage four to stage one, but just like my PTSD, I brought it down to very low levels, but I didn't quite get over it until I got neurofeedback therapy to help me over that last hump, mm-hmm. right? And we need yeah. to figure that type of therapy out for everybody else. Yeah, and it's a it's a long journey, right? Like, I mean, huge, and you might not even know that you're at like the end of it till like way later. Like, yeah, you know, things yeah. change over time. Oh like, yeah, huge, and people go and, through different things. And yeah, some new traumatic experiences happen yeah. too. Like, yeah. life is not like yeah. hunky dory all the time. Yeah. Everyone keeps asking me like, "When are you gonna go compete?" And I'm fully like, "I don't fucking care." Yeah. I fought so many times. Like for yeah. you, it's yeah. exciting and fun and new and awesome because you've never been in a real fight, yeah. homeboy. I've done it all. Like, yeah. I, last time I competed and I got a medal, it was like silver. And I was like, woo. I, yeah. like, I could have I taken gold, but I didn't want to break the guy's arm. So I let him have it. Yeah, when yeah. I went to Worlds, on um, my fifth place match, I broke the dude's arm. He was yeah. tough as shit. In the video, he just kind of like holds his elbow. I couldn't believe it. He was a tough dude. And then in the fourth place match, I would have either had to yank this kid's arm off of his body or just let him have him. So let him have him. Fuck it. I took fourth. Fourth yeah. in the world's fine for me. Like, I yeah. don't care. Yeah. That's the problem. <laughs> anyway, so I... That's a good place to be. I I'm like. going to start uh, at Yorkdale Martial Arts, uh, the headquarters, where yep. I'm going to train. Yep. On Saturdays at um, 7 p.m., I'm going to start a trauma-informed style of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu coaching. And so the structure is based on Vanderkoek's work and based on the things I learned. And it's not specifically that I want to invite just people who have mental health challenges, though you are absolutely welcome, of course. It's more that my concern with martial arts in general is that there's a large and very strong movement towards competition. And this happens with every damn art. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see a branch of BJJ develop and evolve that Mm -hmm. is geared towards self-improvement and concepts like stoicism concepts Mm -hmm. like buddhism have a lot for Mm -hmm. us available now that we understand neuroplasticity so the structure of the class is going to be 
you will come in and hum a song that is common and easy. And that's because in Van der Kolk's work, that activates parasympathetic nervous system, shuts down a lot of our nervous system anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with singing, you're doing slow exhalations. That's right. Bring, yeah, that helps you sense. regulate. Mm-hmm. Cool. After that, then we do a brief instruction of one, maybe two technical breakdowns. Then we will roll for you know 30, 40 minutes because rolling is super fun and it's active meditation and it helps a lot with mental health and other issues. Mm-hmm. At the end of that, I'm then going to put on stoic meditations on YouTube or whatever on yeah, the yeah. overhead yeah. and stretch everyone for 15 to 20 minutes while they reflect on stoic meditation. Mm-hmm. Then turn that off and ask for any one person who cares to do so to pick one of the statements of stoic meditation that struck them particularly that day, mm-hmm. then dissect it, discuss it for those who wish to stay yeah. and try to create more of a camaraderie and a focus of training towards mental and mm-hmm. physical improvement wow. in the original tradition of historical martial arts. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to aim for. And I've already gotten the permission to do that from Mark Picasso and, and Ram who own the club. That's awesome. So I'm going to start it uh, this Saturday and then move forward every Saturday and the main reason I'm doing it is aside from wanting to return to that sort of original martial arts structure of Mm self-improvement as a dad and a lifetime martial artist who doesn't drink alcohol I have nothing to fucking do on Saturdays (laughs) so if you're like me and you're super nerdy and you have a kid or something and there's not much to do and right now in the world we live in with the internet tearing everybody up and everybody yeah. being on this side of that side, mm-hmm. it's hard to find a place where you can just go hang out make friends be cool be chill enjoy yourself so I'm gonna Yorkdale do Martial Arts is that place that was yeah. like my saving place once they finally opened yeah yeah so <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to start doing it on Saturdays this is going to be my big thing that's so, great man yeah yeah so I was I'd love to come to that, that you, uh, yeah for sure of course you can you and everybody you want to bring anybody who wants to hear this wants yeah to yeah, yeah, it's open to anyone. It doesn't matter what team, whatever. It's going to be um, five bucks as an additional fee for team members, and it's going to be fifteen bucks for anybody who's not a body of four team member. Mm-hmm. And that's just because I'm paying them a stipend to use the space, so yeah. we need to like you know make yeah. sure it's cover costs, yeah, cover costs. And that's it. And really, even if you're paying fifteen bucks, it's four times a month, so it's Dude, that's nothing. Like, yeah. You know, Fifteen bucks for a class—that's nothing. 60, 60 bucks a month these days. You pay more than that to go to dinner, so it's you know, pretty. Oh awesome. yeah, yeah. 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 That's just cover costs. But you know, I was really happy that you reminded me of the podcast and stuff because it's just starting at that time. So. Oh yeah, yeah. good good timing. Yeah, that's we, great, we man. Blast. We can, uh, yeah, the <laughs> twenty people that listen to this. Will <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, two of them yeah, yeah. are in the region. Tell two friends, and then they tell two yeah, friends. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Keep telling yeah. you, know, spreading the word out. Yeah, spread I'm gonna the put word. the link on my uh, my Instagram is um, autistic yeah. jujitsu. Mm-hmm. I can put the link on there. I, I put videos up of like nutrition breakdowns and similar stuff like health oriented. Yeah, excellent. Uh, I'm particularly proud I did a breakdown of peanut butter on my Instagram. Oh, I got to check that out. I haven't yeah. seen it. Yeah, I, I did do. this whole, because um, I have a, my original um, qualification was a health fitness nutrition diploma. Yeah, yeah. So I do this whole breakdown on how like craft peanut butter in a plastic jar, it was terrible. It's hydrogenated. The plastic is, uh, those phthalates are actually fat soluble, so they're absorbed in the peanut butter. Mm-hmm. There's sugar in it. Yeah. And all this stuff. Whereas peanut butter that is dry roasted, natural, unsweetened, non hydrogenated in a glass jar mm-hmm. is amazingly healthy for you. I can't find the glass jars. Like, you gotta yeah. go to a specialty health food. No, Fortino's has them. Yeah, uh, okay. you should go to the, the health food section. Of the oh, okay, okay, okay. You can't go to the yeah. same section and, as the craft uh, stuff. <laughs> like nature, N-A-T-U-R is how it's spelled, nature brand. 
is a dry roasted natural unsweetened yeah. in a glass jar. Yeah. There's a couple brands though, but um, literally I go into the breakdown about like the glass jar one will fight cancer, fight bowel cancer, fight heart disease, fight obesity, fight diabetes, fight all this stuff. Whereas the craft version will actually give you all those things. <laughs> and I do that because I want people to understand like nutrition is so complex. It's not just the food itself. It's what it's packaged in, where it came from, how it's shipped, how it's handled. Yeah. And how long has it been on the how shelf? How long has it been on the shelf and like, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I do breakdowns of that. I do it's so important to understand all that, man. Like, yeah, I have a new client who I've been like giving some nutritional advice and like the stuff, stuff I'm telling him is the most basic, like common sense stuff to me that I think, but means probably mind like, blowing to him. Yeah, mind blowing to him. He's seeing huge changes. He's lost like 10 pounds in like a, a month. So yeah. it's like, it's great. It's like, it's like, yeah, this stuff works. Just people need to know advice, about it. But and there's so much misinformation and confusion. Oh, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah that's the thing. It's hard to weird. judge what's true, what's not. Like, this one kills me. Alcohol. You, I constantly still, I see these like little excerpts of like, one glass of wine is good for your heart and blah. No, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, just in case you're listening, it was like a final note before we wrap it up. Um, yeah. Wine contains polyphenols, which are an antioxidant found in grapes. Yeah. Now, first of all, a polyphenol antioxidant is so weak that you could not physically eat enough grapes to ever get a benefit from the polyphenol. You would have to take the polyphenol from the grapes and put it into a concentrated tablet to see any kind of benefit. Mm-hmm. Bar is kind of like a concentrated. Yeah, concentrated. Barring that. Because wine is made from grapes, mm-hmm. winemakers can argue that grape polyphenol is in the wine and therefore there's antioxidants in wine and therefore it might be good for you. Mm-hmm. But the very small amount of polyphenol existing in grapes that is then reduced by fermentation mm-hmm. wouldn't even be enough to help you in the first place. And even if it were, the actual alcohol causes cancer and vastly outweighs the polyphenol. So no, God damn it. Wine and alcohol are not good for you. They might feel good and arguably perhaps they'll relax you. There's a mental health benefit from it. It's not that it's not without benefit, but there's a specific risk of cancer when you drink it, no matter what type, no matter how little it causes cancer. You know, that kind of misinformation is the stuff that keeps people from really learning. Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, there's the <laughs> there's many harms to alcohol besides the besides the potential sure. cause of cancer. There's like uh, there's degenerative effects. Uh, there's like yeah, rapidly, effects to your liver. Aging, yeah, organs get your skin pumped. looks terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can go down the list. Yeah. Like. Causes crazy inflammation. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen? Um, if you haven't, you should look it up. It's fascinating. There are pictures. You can go online and see pictures of people who have chronic alcoholism before and after they quit. Just a picture of their face. Yeah. The reduction of inflammation from the alcohol when they quit, it's incredible. Yeah. It's amazing. It looks like they lost weight, but they didn't. They just, their inflammation went down. Yeah. Their face is less puffy, I'm sure. It's It's looks clearer, less shiny. It's wild to look at. Some of them are just, you're like, whoa, you don't even look at the same person because the inflammation can be so severe, man. Yeah. Stuff is just, you know, everyone likes to party. I get that. I don't want to take it away from you. And celebrating (laughs) a good thing is celebrating a good thing, Mm -hmm. but it's not good for you. Like, yeah. Period. Yeah. 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 Um, I think it's just uh, it's uh, one of these things where it's like alcohol is legal, so it can't be that bad. Yeah. Like, that's the that's the misconception. Yeah. That's, that's, that's when you hear have. something is safe, 
saying legally the definition of safe is very different from the definition of healthy. Yeah. Right? Uh, the smallpox vaccine is safe, but it's not healthy. We don't just give it to everybody because it actually comes with a significant risk that is outweighed by the risk of smallpox. So you want to be vaccinated for smallpox, mm. but it's not without risk. Everything is like this. Yep. You know, there are tons of foods that are safe. McDonald's is safe. It's not healthy, <laughs> no. but it's safe, right? Yeah. Like there's lots of stuff like that that's safe yeah. but not healthy. And that's a very big differentiation people get confused by. They go, the government said it's safe, so it's fine. <laughs> not the case. Yeah, it's yeah. Not the case, right? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's the last thing we'll finish off is just, uh, you got to do your own research and think for oh. yourself a little bit and kind of, uh, you and know, sources, man. a lot of times when you have a really difficult problem that you have to face, such as like you have a difficult roll of dice in your life and you have to deal with PTSD, no one's going to come and fix no. that for you and you have to do the research yourself yeah. and have to figure out what's true and what's not, what works for you, what doesn't, yeah. what like gain that awareness. This is what I try to teach my clients in general is gain awareness about your body and yourself and who you are is, and yeah. that, that can go there's nothing like nothing more valuable nothing more valuable in my opinion than mm -hmm. learning that awareness about yourself mm -hmm. who you are what benefits you your mm -hmm. body is unique mm -hmm. no one diet works for everybody mm -hmm. no one pill works for everybody mm -hmm. that is an incredibly valuable thing to learn yeah, and, and you're the only person who can actually feel the things yeah. that, that are happening in your, yeah. inside your body. So you have to train. No one's going to be able to tell you, you're feeling this right now. Yeah. You're feeling anger. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not. No, you, <laughs> you, you have to be one to sort that out, man. That's yeah. for sure. You know, and I'm very familiar with that as an autistic dude. Like, mm -hmm. a lot of confusing stuff for me. Mm -hmm. I miss a lot of stuff, man. Like, that's yeah. it. It's all good. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. This was like the conversation went for a lot longer than I anticipated. Hope that's okay. Oh, we it's didn't fine. take up too much of your time and we, covered some pretty important topics yeah, I here. Hope, I hope the 20 people love it. Yeah, man. <laughs> this, is, this is cool. I have a lot of friends who are like uh, uh, medical doctors as well who I think will appreciate hearing some of this stuff from, oh, like, a person, uh, from like the, the patient side of the things and like yeah. their perspective. And God, I hope it's, so. It's good to inform them from that perspective. Yeah, they, know, gotta, they gotta... Everyone's got their own perspective like you said and they perceive things differently. Yeah, so. doctors have a tough role right now, especially in Ontario, man. Oh, yeah. It's just getting savaged by poor leadership and bad politics. And, yeah. yeah. So, you don't have to convince me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know. If any person in the medical field listens to this and wants to talk to me, go for it. Uh, you can get my info. It's all yeah. 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 What's the best way to reach you? You want to just share um, that as the last thing? Autistic well, Jiu Jitsu on Instagram. Um, I, I use that. I don't use any other social media, but I do use that one pretty regularly. So you can reach out to me on there. Autistic Jiu Jitsu on Instagram. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sean. Okay. All right. Dope. Thanks again for watching or listening till the end of the podcast. If you have any follow-up questions or comments, please reach out and let me clear up any uncertainty. Either leave a comment or send an email to newsletter at jmartfit.com. That's all I have for you today, ladies and gents. Connect with me on social media at jmartfit on Instagram and Twitter and jmartmoves on Facebook. Or get my free bodyweight training program through subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Jmart out. <laughs>